I'll cry, I'll cry, cry, I'll save everybody, something, something. Oh, you're the most important thing in the world. Oh, God. Shut up! You weepy bunch of irritating nonsense! Okay, okay, let's go, let's go. You ready? Yeah. Three, two, one. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 31. 31. 31. Of the world-famous Tetrapod's Audi podcast. I'm John C. Kreuscher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> All right. Um, so in this thrilling episode there's 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 some follow-up which we have to deal with since you know yeah um uh there's are we are we going to talk about that movie yeah uh, we're going to talk about uh, when when do you want to say what that movie is oh we'll say it now on then it's noah we're going to talk about <laughs> noah noah god <laughs> um we have some cash for questions to get through we have a little bit of discussion when was the when was the when did we do episode 30 it was a long time ago wasn't it it was. It was nearly a month ago, I think. Nearly a month ago. So apologies for the, the long delay. People have, you know, been falling over themselves asking for, come on, when's the next episode? We're desperate. We've got nothing good to listen to online. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like there's any other good, good podcast to listen to. <laughs> Sorry, other podcasters. Just kidding. Um, you listen to all those other podcasts, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we should begin by talking about episode 30, <laughs> which was our... This is part of FU. Oh, by the way, have you got the drinking list to hand? Because I don't. No. I mean, not the drinking list, the... The drinking uh, game. Drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's too long. It's too we'll, long. We'll remember it, I'm sure, yeah. as things come along. I haven't got any alcohol with me anyway, because yeah. it's a school day. <laughs> um, yeah, so episode 30, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we tried very hard to do a special live podcast from a London-based pub. Other pubs in other cities are available. And um, it went <laughs> really, really badly. It was a complete disaster. <laughs> it failed on every single level, didn't it? It did. Well, yes, there were multiple levels of failure. So, I did test the Wi-Fi's. In, the Wi-Fi's? The Wi-Fi of several pubs. And we chose the pub with best Wi-Fi. Even so, the Wi-Fi was <laughs> fairly flaky. Um, we arrived five minutes before we were meant to broadcast yeah. about that, which didn't leave us enough time to set up. Turns out setting up was much harder than we thought, so we started late. Didn't really work. Wi-Fi went flat on its face. Um, we thought we'd record it locally so we could, um, you know, upload it like a normal episode later. Unfortunately, Memo's audio went bad for about three quarters of the episode, and then uh, whose battery, whose laptop I battery mine, went? Mine. Yeah, mine yep, went. Your yeah. laptop battery went. So that was the end of that. So, yeah. So we should say that as as per the famous or infamous episode thirteen, we recorded a huge amount of material. Probably, I don't know, uh, maybe approaching two hours. And in the end, how, you you were able to salvage about like twenty five minutes or something. Twenty five minutes, yeah. We recorded so, an hour and a half, and we got twenty five minutes. Yeah. Out of so it. we we recorded a lot of stuff, 
we, we, we covered a lot of things. Not, I'm not joking, absolutely serious. We covered a lot of stuff, including we went through several cash for questions. All of that was lost. We did lots of discussion about, well, I can't remember because it's such a long time ago. But I know we did a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the final cut. So, um, uh, uh, and it was good. You would, you would have loved it if you're a regular listener. It was great. <laughs> we had a good time. Um, and it was just after LonCon, the science fiction thing. We'd never actually said that we had Memo Kozman as a guest, I don't think, because we just like launched into the conversation. But um, well, the bit where we did was lost. So yeah. Oh, that that was lost as well. Okay, so I'm sure people know who know who he was anyway. Our good friend Memo. So that's episode thirty. So that's the first bit of FU. Now you have just returned from the was it the fifty something symposium on of vertebrate paleontology and comparative anatomy yeah. held well, in. I never looked at never looked at the number, but yes. Like 53rd or something. Yeah. So how was it? I understand that it was entirely devoted to rodents this year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my only live tweets from the uh, event. You're a rubbish live tweeter, Conway. You're rubbish. Well, I I just forgot that live tweeting was a thing. But anyway... (laughs) John's tweets were... Actually, yes, well, obviously, it's... um, it was really good. A lot of the talks were really good, but there was one particular session. Now, I don't know whether the people that some people that did some of these talks are listeners to the podcast. I don't think so. But it was four talks on pretty much the same thing back to back. And that thing was rodent dentition. And I got to say, you know, in the <laughs> In the stakes for boring a subject, that's that you could get at an SVPCA. That's pretty pretty high up on my list. Well, yeah. Even <laughs> even as a fan of rodents, I'm inclined to agree because I know I know the sort of stuff that people talk about at conferences and, and the way actually, it's presented. Yeah. To be fair, the this was not the dullest of these sorts of talks. Actually, any one of these talks individually would have been fine I wouldn't have even noticed but it was that there were four of them on almost exactly the same subject back to back okay um, so yes mm, right but other than rodents and I noticed that all the dinosaur and pterosaur stuff was left to the last day yeah which is some kind of cunning plan to make people <laughs> stay stay for the yeah. whole thing yeah. <laughs> that's so I don't know is it clever or ridiculous or mean I don't know <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, so there were a lot of good talks there. But actually, the one that really stands out for me was um, a talk on teeth and phylogeny. Which is this? Sorry, is this the one with the big fight at the end about waiting characters? There was no fight. Oh. Well, no. Okay, so this is what this is what the talk was. So, oh god, I should have got his name. Sorry, I've forgotten the guy's name. But anyway, so what he did is he got. Um, uh, the morphological character set, right, from a logistic analysis, divided it, um, skeletal characters, including cranial characters, and dental characters, um, and compared it to the tree based on molecular phylogeny, phylogeny, which apparently these days is pretty good, so it's sort of the independent arbiter of which one, what trees are most accurate. So he did... He compared the skeletal characters alone, the dental characters alone, and the entire set to the molecular phylogeny. 
And you want to take a guess what, out of those three options, just taking the skeletal characters, just taking the dental characters, and taking them to combined, was the best tree? Well, my assumption is combined, because that's the more data yeah. you have, you'd think the stronger the signal you have. Yes, but there's a reason I'm talking about this, and it's because it's yeah. with the dental characters removed. Yeah. So he's saying, don't use dental characters in cladistic analysis. Wow. And what, what group was this on? Mammals. Right. Were all mammals, or I don't remember. I think it was a subset, but um, yes. don't use dental characters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because as we know, the most yes! boring talks Woo! we can have at SVPCA are really detailed talks on dental characters for cladistic analyses. Take that ectolope and metacone you've just been made <laughs> redundant. <laughs> you and your ectoflex and your metacondylid. <clears throat> so there was a little bit of a. There was a little bit of a... Um, was there a gasp talk. and a swoon from the audience? There was, yes, very much. My thoughts! In the section I was in, there was a bit of a yes and fist pumping. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, some que- there was one question at the end, which was a decent question. Like, okay, so it makes the overall trees worse. It's assuming all this is right, but does it help you with narrower... Um, groups, smaller groups. So if you're just differentiating between species or within you know, genre level sort of things, whether it helps there. But um, yeah, genre, so, genre, genre, genre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there you go. So that was the that oh. was the standout talk, which was on mammal teeth, which is amazing. Well, I never did. How ironic. Uh, I, I, whenever anyone in a because obviously I'm writing a big book at the moment which has got lots of mammals in it whenever you write about the terminology for mammal teeth which obviously everybody has to know if they're you know getting to know vertebrate osteology and dental morphology you always have to have this apology it's like sorry there's like a million terms here and you've kind of got to know not all of them but the, the, the... and now how satisfying will it be to say all of these are irrelevant of course they're not irrelevant at all because obviously they still you know tell us about function and behavior and stuff but uh, but yes. no interesting yeah um so um but overall it was a good well-attended conference i guess i sort of yes got... it was i think the second biggest svpca ever which You're is surprising kidding. because a lot kidding. of you weren't there so that's yeah. one person that's not there <laughs> <laughs> i heard that it was really poorly attended because most people are doing the svp meeting which of course is in berlin uh this this month yeah september I think that was the expectation, but it wasn't. It was huh. it was 118 people or something. It's relatively uh, large. Uh. Are you doing SVP? I am not. No, I'm not. I really wish I could, but I just can't. Cannot, put it in. cannot afford it. Uh. So I was keeping. I was keeping an eye on the live tweeting. And well done, Jessica Lawrence Wujek was a very good live tweeter. And uh, Liz Martin. Th- these are colleagues of mine at Southampton. Uh, they did pretty good. But loads of other people. God, come on, slackers. Like. I think your your tweets were one was oh my god the rodents and then <laughs> hashtag more rodents or something. You people aren't putting enough effort into this. I think like, live tweet there's more to live tweeting than this. But um, yeah, it's, so um, yeah, okay, right, right. So that's SVPCA uh, symposium on vertebrate paleontology and comparative yeah. anatomy. Ah, big... I have one more SVPCA thing to talk about. Here I, I am. Lead... Up yeah, yeah, no, but this is this is leading into fo- follow up because I'm sure we've had some follow up about antlers haven't we yes we have a couple of times yes so do you want to do you want to say what that follow up is what follow up I wasn't yeah. listening follow, follow up, up on ants follow well, up we, on we, antlers we covered stuff in the last episode because we were talking about um, 
we, we covered this, didn't we? Because people were saying why why there probably is the the regrowth of antlers as opposed to the retention of antlers. We we did that last episode. Yes. Okay. But I there was a talk at SVPCA by uh, Nicola Heckerberg. Yeah, Heckerberg. I think that's probably right. On Drink. the evolutionary history of <coughs> antlers, and I. After the session, I asked her this very question: Why? Why do they regrow? What's the? Ah. Um. And her answer was that she didn't really know, which is not surprising because I don't think there is a definitive answer to this. But that, um, symmetry is very important. Yeah. So if uh, antler gets broken on one side and not the other then the mating chances of that right. male are greatly diminished. So there's an advantage to regrowing every year to maintain symmetry. Okay, that which would all fit with, with the rambling discussion we had about sexual selection and the... Yes. Uh, as being the driver of antler evolution. Okay, that's, that's good stuff. Cool. Um, there is another thing, uh, a, another part of FU, which which links to that. Which did did I? Nah, this might be something that got lost in one of the podcasts. But did we ever talk, do that discussion about hybrids and about the alleged uh, pony deer hybrid from the New Forest? I'm sure we've we've mentioned this several times. It's a brilliant story. I think we talked about it for ages in uh, episode thirteen. I think you're right. Uh, we 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 did well. So. Impossible hybrids, impossible as in like the you know the supposedly the anatomical and genetic and you know the distance between the animals concerned. Just <laughs> it's just no, I don't think that's ever going to happen. A hybrid between a rabbit and a cat, that sort of chicken and a duck, that sort of thing. Um, well, there's these alleged hybrids between deer and and ponies, which I th- I remember seeing a picture of one of them, and it's like that's <laughs> just <laughs> when we did this last time, I said. I said, "What well, you you were like? How do they describe the animal? Well, it had a body, had the, the body of a deer and the face of a deer, but the legs of a pony." <laughs> and your response was, "Isn't that isn't that a pony, <laughs> or isn't that a deer? Yeah, <laughs> one of the two." I said, "Oh yeah." <laughs> so I'm pretty sure it was actually some uh, mistaken, like uh, an unusual individual, a malformed individual. You know, with like you can have all kinds of weird cranial and limb things going on you can you can have like you know uh, there are these um so so obviously deer have cloven hooves but you can have freak specimens that have like a unified hoof so it looks like they've got a you know a, like a like a horse type hoof and you can have animals like horses with unusually long slender noses all kinds of unusual things um well there was a thing happened on twitter a while ago where people were talking about alleged hybrids between deer and cattle which is more acceptable given that there are artiodactyls that are supposed to have been separated for, I don't know, 40 million years as opposed to 60 million years, that kind of thing. And I went and looked at these animals, and there's this, there's this brownish... If you, if you Google deer-cow hybrid or deer-cattle hybrid or, or cervid-bovid hybrid or something, you will find pictures of these things. And um, there's, there's... I'm doing this right now. Okay, all right. You should find a slightly built reddish cow type thing that looks a little bit like a deer in the face any luck uh, still loading still loading i'm i'm not going to try it myself cuz um and 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 people have actually honestly proposed that these things are hybrids but it's like no that's just like a a malnourished and 
kind of uh, not particularly strapping cow. It's just like <laughs> a weak-looking little <laughs> cow. It's not a hybrid at all. So the, I wrote this down like about a month ago, and there was a lot more to the story then, but that's, uh, that's, that's for some reason I've put that in FU, so I thought I wanted to mention that. Given that we covered it before, although maybe we haven't because that bit got cut out of the show. I don't know. All I'm getting are these stupid photo montages of let's put this animal's head on another animal. Okay, right. You know those things. They were funny for about a week when people started doing them. You know, they're like the, I don't know, frog shark thing like that. And the original batch were quite good, but now just stop it. Okay, I just Googled cow-deer hybrid, three separate words, yeah. and do you know how Google provides a list of images at the very top of the page? Yeah. The image on the far right is the animal I have in mind, a small brown cow. No, see, uh, Google doesn't give you the same things. I, yeah. I, I did deer-cow hybrid, so let's try cow-deer hybrid. <laughs> no, it doesn't give, it gives different people different results. No, it's weird. Uh, it's at macroevolution.net. An ostensible deer-cow hybrid photographed recently, oh, July 20, uh, 2013, in France. It's a Lon cow. McGregor. Exactly. It's just a cow. <laughs> it's just a cow. There's yeah. nothing uncow like there. Lon McGregor, who took this picture, notes that in comparison with a cow, this animal is browner, unlike all other cows, <laughs> as hard as... Oh, wow, a brown cow! <laughs> More pronounced horns at a younger age. Because nah, deer have horns at younger ages. A more deer-like head, unlike other cows, and thinner legs, unlike other cows. <laughs> Additional bit is the animal's, animal can be seen here. So, I don't know anything about macroevolution.net, but um, <laughs> this does not bode well. <laughs> and there's just various pictures of this cow, and it's like, it's a skinny-looking cow. It's like a cow with, uh, you know... Just, it just, I can't think of the name of a condition, but it's like a, it's kind of sort of an anorexic looking cow. It's not a great looking cow, but it's still a cow. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the people that uh, believed this sort of thing. Yeah. Some sort of well, condition. I think I know what that condition is. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's all I have to say about that for now. So <laughs> now, in episode nine of the world-famous Ted Boswell podcast, we spoke about night parrots. Quick reminder, night parrots supposedly went extinct around about 1912. Dead ones, however, well, there were various sightings after 1912 making people think there's probably still around somewhere in, you know, the the sort of um, eastern deserty bits of Australia, sort of the edge of Queensland. And um, then dead ones were found in 1990, 2006, and then a live one was photographed in 2013, which is why we were talking about it, because like, this confirms these animals have persisted. They are still around. Well, one has now been filmed. It was filmed in April 2014 by a guy called Rob Nugent, or Nugent and uh, that's due to be released real soon. Thanks to Mark Carter for the tip-off on that. So I'll be really excited to see a live night parrot. It's like the thylacine of birds. That's, that's, uh, people have actually said that. So... Um, Given that we spoke about it at length last time, I just wanted to cover that. So, night parrots have now been filmed, or one has been filmed alive. So, um, right. Now we come to the next section of the show. (laughs) That macroevolution bit should have been in the someone is wrong on the internet. (laughs) In fact, can you go back and edit it? I want to start another section of the show called Darren's Anecdotes. (laughs) Oh, these are great. 
<laughs> Did I ever tell you about cheering kids thing? <laughs> you oh. should. You should. <laughs> we've got. To, we'll do that, and we'll do the Linton Linmouth story. Uncle Darren's story. anecdotes. Uncle Darren's <laughs> anecdotes. Now we move on to the part of the show called. This is where we need a jingle. I told you, you got to do these jingles. Mm. News from the world of Darren and John. Yeah. Um. Uh, I've written down three things. I've written down Thalassodromia sebaciensis, Paleo Art article, and stuff on Tetzu. Is there any news from the world of John? No, that we did that. Darren? We've done that. Did we? Yeah, SVPCA. All oh, right, okay. That's the news from the world of John. Yeah. And we obviously covered Longcon last time. Uh, Thalassodromia sebaciensis. Thalassodromia is a Brazilian pterosaur. It's uh, an asdarkoid pterosaur with a like, big, uh, you know, uh, backwardly projecting crest. Uh, quite a large animal, wingspan, I don't know, four meters or so. And I believe last year, or maybe this year, I can't remember without any of the stuff in front of me, um, a couple of our colleagues um, published a new species of Thalassodromius from Transylvania, from, from Romania, Lake Cretaceous of Romania. You meant to say Transylvania. Well, having been to Transylvania, <laughs> I several times I refuse to participate in any stereotyping of that region because. It, <laughs> Do you mean there's not really any vampires there? As far it as would, you know, it would be like saying it's. The, it's I was going to say. But I say public. I say Pennsylvania like that too. Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's just make, It's just funny because it may not be funny if you're Transylvania though because because no, it get really old. It's really, really annoying. And it's like you go there and it's you go to Transylvania and it's like why did anybody ever come up with any of that stuff about castles and mountains and darkness and vampires? It's like it's got nothing to do with Transylvania. But uh, it is. There's, there's how many other national stereotypes could. You know, think of all the like classic Australian stereotypes, and it's like, how annoying would it be if every single time you ever said you're from Australia, people people would go, "Oh, struth, mate, pass the forex." Throw another shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> they do. Which which yeah. did you redo? Yeah, yeah, Is that a boomerang in your so, pocket? So I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> you're gonna, gonna pass up. it on to the poor Transylvanians. Yeah. Well, I'm only 39% English, according to a recent test I took, so there's no stereotypes to stick on me, he says, swinging from his coffee. How does that work? Uh, I don't understand. <laughs> you're, you're, you're asked a bunch of questions on football, and you ah, care I about see. them. I see, yeah. But there wasn't an option, why the, what, why, did I, why should I give a crap about football? Because, oh God, sport. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Professional sport. <sighs> Take uh, that, sports fans. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sports fans. Um, but Jesus, get a life. And uh, throw your money somewhere where it might be useful. Um, ah, just kidding, just kidding. I know we've got lots of people that are sports yeah, fans. You should, anyway. you should spend a lot more time watching Star Wars over and over and <laughs> over again and memorising all the freaking lines. That's what you should be doing with your time. <laughs> the good of us, for the good of us all, it's not selfish like sport is. Sport is wholly selfish. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> this this Thalassodromius, ostensibly from okay, this alleged Romanian species. I should cut a very long story short here. They basically they 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 said they had this new kind of pterosaur belonging to a kind of pterosaur only known from South America and from substantially earlier in the rock record. And uh, they said that this they, they made up a whole load of new implications for this new rem- Romanian pterosaur species. They said how it indicated niche partitioning between this pterosaur and the Azdarkids that are already known to be there. 
It said that it indicated co-evolution with angiosperms because this animal is probably like a frugivore, eating fruit and foraging the woods and all this kind of stuff. Um, their paper, like, as is, I think, I think you're allowed to say this stuff in public. Like all papers, well, not all papers, like so many papers, you know, it went to various journals beforehand, so a lot of us got to see it before it was published. And during the review process, you know, people said, hmm, I'm not sure this is a pterosaur you've got here. In fact, I think I know exactly what it is and told them exactly what it was. But they still published this paper. What they've got is a part of the plastron of a turtle, a turtle called Calicobotian, which is a well-known turtle in the latest Cretaceous of Transylvania. And uh, so in order to basically set the record straight, a group of people submitted a paper saying, nah, that's not a new species of Thalassodromius. That's not even a pterosaur. It's a bit of turtle plastron. And two teams submitted identical, well, you know, manuscripts at the same time. And in the end, everybody ended up collaborating. So there's one giant publication with was it 21 authors or 31 <laughs> authors or something um i was involved and and i can tell you as an author i did actually contribute i did actually write some words that, that appear in the final paper so what we do is we say thalassodromius sebaschensis is not a thalassodromius at all it's not an out of place anachronistic uh you know novel ecologically significant pterosaur with ramifications for pterosaur diversity in europe no it's a misidentified chunk of a known turtle so uh, i think this is well known among people who care now, because obviously pterosaur people have been talking about it a lot, and it's Mark Witten's blogged about it at Mark Witten, the blog. Um, um, so yeah, yeah. Mm. So <laughs> twenty-one authors, or thirty-one. I can't Th- remember. Thirty-one. Oh. Yeah, a lot of authors. It's pretty funny. To a lot um, of people cared about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of people like... genuinely cared, and also there is also a a kind of recently developed tradition <laughs> whereby there are a number of authors who like quickly respond I, I think because there are people who are like really really into pterosaurs you know there's many groups of people who don't really care no one's yeah. paying any attention but pterosaurs people who care about pterosaurs really care about pterosaurs they yeah. really care and yeah. they jumped on this straight away and said no no turtles <laughs> in my world of pterosaurs be gone vile amorphous creatures of unknown phylogeny um <laughs> possibly crown archosaurs yeah yeah oh, we covered this so one. goddamn weird we cover this in episode nine as well oh, i hey. haven't done yeah. my homework on this yeah yeah and there's a oh there's a sexy new turtle origins paper coming out real soon but we can't talk about it yet hang on hang on no what's weird about being um crown archosaurs is that they could be stem birds um it's unlikely but it's yeah yeah, they they could be, yeah. In the phylogenies, in the molecular phylogenies that find them to be archosaurs and indeed crown archosaurs, they're on the crocodile branch, not the bird branch. But since I, they can slip below that node, then it's telling <laughs> you that the it's weak, isn't it? So it's, it's very weak, and it's it's been contradicted by other studies which which find uh, molecular support for a grouping with uh, lepidosaurs, squamates, and tortaras. Hmm. But, um, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll come back to this. Uh, I also thought we should briefly mention the paleo art stuff, but maybe we shouldn't. We should wait till the till the, the articles come out. Yeah, because because paleo art, obviously, we've covered it quite a few times here already, and it's quite a big thing in the world of people interested in dinosaurs and prehistoric animals in general. Uh, again, Mark Witten. Oh, how many plugs does he get? God. Mark's done a couple of really interesting things on paleo art recently, and we've collab- you and I have collaborated with him on something that's going to be published soon on paleo art and stuff on Tetsu. I don't know why, really, why I wrote that down. 
but there's always good stuff on Tetsu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go to Tetsu. Not right now, at some point. <laughs> I think when I wrote that, it was because I'd just done the um, Humans Among the Primates article, which was, I wouldn't say controversial, but did get a lot of, you know, you, you write an article about the humans within the context of the anatomy and biology of our closest relatives within primates, then uh, it's that's that's not a novel thing, but a, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know why. I'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, right. I've got to go put a cover on. Okay. Okay. And then we're going to move on to cash questions. <laughs> okay. Oh, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not live. Um. Off the, off the back of the Thalassodromius paper, I won't say there's a whole bunch of like new ta- new uh, new tape. No, new pterosaur <laughs> things have just come out, but loads of new pterosaur stuff. Some really cool stuff, like two things where there's assemblages of um, uh, specimens of different age groups and genders, and one with eggs, Hamipterus, and uh, yeah. But we're not going to talk about pterosaurs. What are we going to talk about, John? Tapirs. The world of tapirs. Yay! <laughs> There's a new tapir species which has just been discovered. It's called Tapirus cabamani. It was uh, described by Mario Coswell and colleagues in the Journal of Amalgy, first shot by Teddy Roosevelt in some time in blah, 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 North and South America. I thought about this, but it sounds a bit like a sausage. What? I'm sorry? Tapirus cabamani. Cabamani. It's like a tapering sausage. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there's three papers that now exist on Tabarus Kabamani. Uh, some saying that it should not be talk- called Tabarus Kabamani. Anyway, should we move on? Oh, yes. and Teddy Roosevelt shot Please. one. Please. <laughs> Good. Did I already say that? I don't oh, know. Oh, and another thing, talking about Teddy Roosevelt and shooting things, that whole chicken thing that we did in episode 30, we've done all that before. I think I, think I actually said the exact same words about the intelligence of chickens. So apologies to regular listeners. Ah, oh, they've forgotten. Just like you had. And yeah. I had. If there were transcripts... Yeah, there are. We'd know. Yeah. yeah. How's it going? How's it going? <laughs> Getting those online, by the way. Shut up. <laughs> okay. We now come to the part of the show that John likes to call... John's Cozy Corner. <laughs> no. Cash for questions! Cash for questions. Right. Okay. So let's pick the... <laughs> Yeah, we've been getting really behind on cash questions, and again, we can't do them all this episode, so we're going to do three or four, and then we've got, then we'll do the next episode, and we'll try and get to next episode as quickly as we can, right? Yes, to make up for our month-long thing. Hiatus. Yep. Okay, so what's the oldest one here? 29th of July, that's fairly old, isn't it? Gosh. What's July? What's July? Kevin Gibbs. Kevin! I vaguely understand the Avon Respiratory System. Oh, not again! (laughs) John can't pronounce Avon Respiratory System. Respiratory, respiratory. Something's going wrong there. (laughs) But I'm completely stymied by sauropod pulmonary physiology. Their ridiculous next trachea created huge dead space and airflow resistance. How did they manage to breathe? So yeah, we did this in episode 30, didn't we? This yeah. is why it all feels so familiar, but it didn't make it into the episode. 
shouldn't say that because <laughs> because basically we've had a full dress rehearsal so uh yes yeah <laughs> so our mumbling and bumbling this time will just look all the worse exactly <clears throat> yeah so what's the answer darren Okay, so the answer is that first of all, the one of the first things to say is that, okay, so dead space refers to the amount of air you've got to clear out of your trachea before you can take a new breath. And obviously sauropods with necks of possibly 15, possibly even 17 meters in some cases, some mementosaurus species apparently, um, these incredible necks, it's presumed that how do they actually breathe out far enough before they can take in the next breath? And we know from copious evidence, predominantly, for good evidence from skeletal pneumaticity, we know that sauropods had an air sac system exactly the same as birds with giant bellows-like air sacs distributed throughout the, throughout the soft tissue of the body, so like throughout the chest and abdomen, but also throughout the skeleton as well. So we know that they were able to move huge volumes of air around within their bodies. It's not a problem if you've got this bellows-like air sac system to shunt around. I've no idea of the quantities concerned. That's actually not often discussed. But cubic we're talking about cubic meters of air aren't we a lot we're talking about a lot of air they're able to literally move it around the body very quickly so that's kind of like the main thing and we've got compelling evidence that sauropods are extensively pneumatic in fact two groups of sauropods saltosaurus titanosaurs and rabachisaurus diplodocoids um even uh we've got indications that they pneumatized parts of their pelvic girdle like their ilium and their Ischia in some uh, Rabachisaurus, that was revealed by a recently named animal called Tatooinia. And in some titanosaurs, some Celtosaurus titanosaurs, there's evidence for uh, pelvic pneumatization, but also pneumatization in the scapulae and coracoids. So it's, it's well known among people interested in dinosaurs that the um, vertebral column is invaded by air sacs, so these airfield sacs connected by tube to the lungs. But the invasion of air sacs into the like the bones of the limbs and the limb girdles that's quite rare but we know that sauropods were doing that so sauropods were like you know crazy pneumatic so tons and tons of evidence for for pneumaticity air sacs throughout the body air sacs throughout the skeleton that explains how they're able to shuttle this air around avoid dead space but the caveat here is that although this obviously helps with the long neck Technically, you probably, well, maybe you don't necessarily need the air sac system to ventilate a tremendously long air pipe anyway, because you can say it. Which animal am I thinking of, John? Sperm whale. Sperm whales, because there are animals that don't have air sacs, but which do have tremendously long uh, nasal pastures, uh, you know, obviously continuous with the, with the um, windpipe, uh, and yet they don't have. Uh, an air sac system, they're just able to obviously contract the lungs powerfully enough to, uh, and maybe use some peristalsis as well, I don't know. but Yeah, and I, I would just say I'm not sure that this was ever going to be a problem for sauropods. I mean, although the neck is quite long, their bodies are, are huge compared to their necks. Um, and I'm just not convinced that this was ever a volumetric problem. I think their lungs were always huge compared to their trachea. So... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I yep. don't think I don't think that it ever was going to be a problem for teres, uh, for for sauropods. Pterosaurs, um, as darker pterosaurs are a bit different because their bodies are somewhat smaller compared to their necks. I can sort of see that you might get into a problem there, but of course they had air sac systems as well. But yep. yeah, so sauropod dinosaurs, even though their necks look very long, you're thinking about like a quite a thin little tube compared to that 
great big honking, fairly fat body, and the the enormous lungs you'll fit in there, then it, I don't I don't think this is a serious problem for them. Yeah, we should note as well that that many sauropods are almost kind of like barrel shaped uh, in cross section, tremendously. To, not universally so, but generally very wide animals. Um, so that and that's in keeping with what you've said. You know, you've got to imagine quite a lot of lung space and air sac space uh, throughout throughout the body. But we should also say that you know part of the reason that I think, and I, you'll probably agree, and I think most other people would as well. Part of the reason that sauropods and pterosaurs and theropods uh, evolved gigantic size and these remarkable anatomical features like ridiculous necks and so on. Uh, that is because they started out their history with extensive pneumatization. So being pneumatic uh, was probably helpful in terms of like you know evolving a longer neck and evolving a particularly large body in a hot climate and and uh, and yeah. so on. Yeah. It's not the whole story, but it's but it's part of the yeah, story. Yeah, it does look like it's part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because obviously ornithischians no evidence for pneumatization of anything. Well, not yet. Well, in their heads, but that's not unusual amongst animals. Not yet. But as far as we can tell, it's not extensive in ornithischians. And I think that... But they ornithischians do seem to be limited in size, which is interesting. You know, the biggest ones tend to scrape it around 20 tons or so from memory. There's none bigger than that. Whereas sauropods, as far as we can tell, go way bigger than that. Um, yeah, maybe was, three or four times bigger. Well, even bigger than that, if you... Um, Look at the largest sauropod trackways, um, which are in linear dimension, twice as big as the biggest skeletons we've got. Um, these things had to be weighing 120, 130, 150, even 200 tons. Ooh, yeah, I don't know about that, but because well, this is there's no getting I, around it. Well, I know that people have published estimates of that magnitude, but when other people recalculate. The probable masses of the animals, they tend to come down in size because they're not as heavily built as we think they were. A large no, no, size. no, no. The the natural calculation suggests two hundred tons for these things, and they, you can get them down to one hundred and fifty, maybe one hundred and twenty. But they're because the ones we have skeletons for, uh, or skeletal material for, are still up around eighty tons, right? Well, no, because Amphicelius fragilimus from the Morrison Formation, based on this famous lost vertebra, Greg Paul's estimates are 150 to 200 tonnes. Mm. But this is twice as big as that would be. Well, are you talking about the Broom, Sandstone, Tony, Thulborn, Gigantopod track? There's other ones as well, but yes. Well, are there other ones? Because there I are thought other the, ones, yeah. The Broom, Sandstone... Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, they're going. People have seen them. Yeah, they're around. They're not published yet. Oh, so it's like Sasquatch DNA. But the the Tony Thelborn <laughs> did a talk on his trackways, and all the trackway people there were fairly convinced of, of them. I bloody trackway people make up your minds, bloody trackway people, because trackway people also say all the time that these things aren't real tracks; so they're under tracks, and they don't represent the real size of the animal's feet. So, because under tracks can be like two or three times or more bigger. Every single time I've heard people talk about Tony Thulborn. We should say, for those who don't know, Tony Thulborn, well-known Australian paleontologist, has been saying for years that this place in, is it Queensland, the Broom Sandstone? Yeah. No, 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 it's in Western Australia. Western Australia, sorry. There's these tracks 
where the individual footprints are like the size of a dining room table. They're like, I don't know, like a metre and a half long. They're 1.6 so- 1. metres long. Thank you. 1.6. They're ridiculous. And he's called them gigantopod trackways. And to start with, people saying, ah, oh, they can't be trackways. You've misidentified stromatolites or, you know, or sedimentary structures of some form. And then more recently, when I've seen people talk about them, it's like, well, they're definitely... I saw a discussion just a couple of days ago, probably in wake of SVPCA, where ichnologists were saying they're under tracks, and therefore not representative of the real size of the animals. I don't have a horse in this race. I don't care. You know, I'm quite yeah. Happy. Well, from I was sitting next to Peter Falkingham, who works on simulating yeah, um, trackways, and I I was wondering the whole time what he was thinking of this talk, um, because there were features there that you don't find in under tracks, and the and the term under track is a problematic term as well. Um, by is the it? Way. It is. Um, because tracks punch through layers, um, and bits of tracks. This works more for three-toed animals, or you know, slender-toed animals. Bits of the toes go through several layers, and your actual best track is under the top layer of sediment. It's it's odd, but yeah, you you probably have to see his simulations of this stuff and and his actual video of it happening. To um, mm-hmm. and to see what that's about, but there are features of these tracks that suggest they are not under tracks. Um, there's little <clears throat> curls and ridges of um, uh, mud peeling away and things like this, which are generally oh, yeah, associated yeah. with the actual track. Um, also, you can see the under tracks underneath it, so you some of them you can section through. They're broken off obviously, not sectioned. They're broken. You can see what pattern the undertrack is making. So, and you, you get things like you can see the claw impressions. And if we're talking about to get something twice as big to retain that sort of detail, it just, it, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not buying that at all. Uh, well, I, so I, I would say I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that sauropods got at least um well okay let's say saying... let's say they are somewhat exaggerated let's say they are under tracks they're a third again as big as they should be we're still it... talking about sauropods that are much bigger than the skeletons we have see uh, see i would i have said and written in books and, and articles and such that there's based on things like amphicelius vigilimus and these tracks the broom sandstone tracks I have said before that there are there's evidence for sauropods over a hundred tons, mm. and people said people came up with these estimates, you know, in the eighties and nineties, Dale Russell, Greg Paul, but since then I've noticed that sauropod experts tend to say that forty or fifty tons is more or less the max, and even estimates of like eighty tons for Argentinosaurus are way too high and don't take account of like the amount of pneumatization and they sort of overestimate because they've scaled up from far smaller animals and so on. Sure, I mean, as you can imagine, um, well. Mike Taylor and Matt Waddell, who are sauropod experts, uh, were very interested in this talk as well. The thing is, what you've got to keep in mind is that twice as long, if you just scale up normally, does that mean eight times as heavy? Eight times as heavy. Not twice as heavy, not four times as heavy, eight times as heavy. But... But remember that when people have worked out the masses of small, like normal-sized sauropods... Hmm. 
there's a whole bunch of recent estimates where the animals are nowhere near as heavy as conventionally they've been thought. So Mike is very much obviously aware of all this scaling stuff, and he's done this for Amphicelius, and he and Matt have done it for Diplodocus and Brachiosaurus. In Mike's 2009 paper on Giraffe Titan and Brachiosaurus, he has this animal coming out of something like 23 tons, which for an animal that's over 20 meters long is about half the mass that people had assumed before because, you know, most published estimates, even those of Greg Paul, for animals like Giraffe Titan are 35 to 40 tonnes. And he's saying like... So he's saying like a Brachiosaurus, or Giraffe Titan, whatever, sized animal is about as heavy as like a really big mammoth, yeah. uh, which, which is counterintuitive given that the, the Brachiosaur is like so much taller and longer, but... It's a far. It's a totally differently built animal. I agree that. with that, and all that's true, of course. But these trackways are these tracks are twice as long in linear dimension as a Brachiosaurus track, and therefore you come out with a weight scaling on Brachiosaurus or Giraffe Titan, 160 tons. So even if you bring that down somewhat, you're huh. still over 100 tons. You know, okay, even if yeah. you bring it down by 60 tons, you know, a good third of its weight. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there might be some sort of tricky things going on here, but yeah, I think over a hundred tons is a is, is almost certain. It's say. well, it's it's interesting to hear because obviously, because you say you've just you've just been to a talk by him, so obviously you've you've heard current like a current evaluation of this stuff. It's good to see things reevaluated. I mean, I'm looking at his yeah, and we paper. had a good mix. You know, we had Peter Falkium, who's a trackway expert. We had. And Matt and Mike Dell, who obviously sauropod experts working on this very thing of estimating sauropod weight, and yeah, so the consensus amongst them immediately after the talk is that it looks pretty good, and they're thinking of sauropods about 160 tons. Well, there you go. There you uh, go. So I'm, I'm looking here at Thelborn's 2012 paper, "Impact of Sauropod Dinosaurs on Lagoonal Substrates in the Broom Sandstone," WA, and. Yes, from the the lovely colour photographs he's got here, you can see like a surface track that looks like a real footprint, and then you've got a definite series of like deformations underneath, so-called undertracks or ghost prints or or whatever you want to call them. Even the ones on the top, though, do not. I from what I remember of seeing these broom sandstone gigantopod tracks, is that. <sighs> I'm looking for one that's got like what I would consider a nice, tidy sauropod footprint shape. They're pretty crappy. They look like giant pancakes. Yeah, he had he did show one in his talk, um, which was relatively good. Um, but then, of course, this all depends on how compliant the substrate is. If you're if you're if you're trip walking on like moist sand or something, yeah. You're not going to get a crisp track. No, indeed, so. and I think that these are sort of relatively weak <clears throat> tracks, so they're messy. Um, yeah. Of course, there are other tracks in this um, in this uh, substrate. There's not just sauropods, so it is trackway bearing. Um. So yeah, so so there you go, listeners. This is a, an interesting mini debate that's been I first became aware of this stuff in the mid 1990s and it's obviously um still still, <laughs> still controversial today still going on yeah and the and the interesting thing what well one of the interesting things about these super sauropods besides all the questions about biology and physiology that people always ask is um how many like th- this this site broom sandstone 
I don't know how many there is, but I get the impression there's actually quite there's several trackways consisting of multiple tracks, and there's even like a you know. Oh, by the way, Peter Falcon there, there was a reviewer for this. Thousands, thousands of them, right? Yeah. Okay, so so even let's ignore everywhere else in the world. Let's just talk about Western Australia. Where are the bones? The answer is there's there's none. Yeah. <laughs> so these these animals, we have no idea how abundant they were when they were alive, but in terms of like their representation, in the fossil record. They're, they're just they're, they're terrible animals. They just never even bother to show up in the fossil record. Well, they show, they do show up in the fossil record. As, <laughs> oh yeah, as, sorry, as, in the track, as track yeah. in um, the body in the body record. Yeah, um, yeah, indeed. So what what are we missing in the in the um, record of skeletons? Is is annoyingly patchy. Yeah, and for an animal that must have a skeleton alone, just the bones that must have weighed tens of tons, literally. Yeah, and maybe, maybe, maybe even even like only twenty tons or even only ten tons. That's a lot of bone, <laughs> and it's all gone. It's, it's all, all gone. gone. So, yeah. anyway, we've gone off at a tangent there, haven't we? We have. So, uh, so yeah, let's get back. To, let's get back to cash questions. I, I think. Well, I think. I, I don't know if you've got anything else to say, but I'm, I think we covered the majority of what Kevin was getting at. I hope he's happy with what we've said. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So the the upshot is that I, you know. Even with normal lungs, I think sauropods would have been able to push enough air through that pipe to not end up with dead space. And sauropods probably had super lungs. So yeah, they did have super lungs. Fact, yeah, fact. Right. So they're, they're <clears throat> giant ducks, but with even more pneumatization and longer necks. Giant swans, quadrupedal giant swans, super swans. <laughs> yes. Okay. So which one do we want to go for? Uh, Patrick Murphy. Planet yes. of the Apes. Yes, nice and quick. Okay, so <laughs> have either so this sorry this is from Patrick Murphy. Have either of you seen the new Planet of the Apes movie? Either Rise or Dawn, and just how much did John hate them? Or perhaps more seriously, how well do you think they pull off the intelligent non-human great apes? Okay, thank you for the question, Patrick. It's been a long time in coming this one, I know. He, he sent it like months ago. Yeah. Um, this was have one I of the did... original Lost Ones. <laughs> <laughs> the Lost Tetsu podcast questions. Have either of you seen the new Planet of the Apes movies? Well, I've seen Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Is that the older one? I haven't seen the new one. See, here's what we should have done. <laughs> we should have gone and seen, because I've seen one of them and I don't know which one. <laughs> Didn't, isn't this in the drinking game? <laughs> this is in the drinking game and I've run out of drink. <laughs> Rise yeah, of it was... the Planet of the Apes. So, uh, 2011. I think that's the one I've seen. I think that's the one I've seen. Uh, yeah, okay. And so, is the new one Dawn? Because I believe that the new one is meant to be better than the older one. I think you're right. The new one is done with Gary Oldman, and it's after some sort of apocalypse that's... Like, like, caused the breakdown of human civilization, and uh, there's intelligent apes that have set up their own community somewhere close to San Francisco. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah but th- hang on, Rise of the Planet of the Apes is set in San Francisco, also, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm remembering they go into the redwood forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's we've both seen the same one. Anyway, so. I don't think we really need to know which one it is because we've both seen the same one and I'm sure Patrick <laughs> Murphy knows which one we're talking about. And anyone that's seen it will know that's the one we're talking about. It. I didn't like it. Oh, what a surprise. You, 
What? How about you? What did you think of it? Well, that's that's not important. That's not part of the question. Just how yeah. much did John hate them or hate it? Okay, so we're going to talk okay, about right. So games. yeah, with the on caveat that everyone says the 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 new one is better or good, even. Well, I didn't I didn't hate it like I hated um, Prometheus. Let's say. <laughs> I just thought, eh, wasn't right. Wasn't a good film. Do you have anything intelligent to say about it? CG was. I felt a little bit ropey in places. Uh huh. I, I thought CG was not bad. It was okay, but it wasn't great. You know, it was obviously CG, which yeah. I didn't like. And I wish they'd try a, once again to make things look real rather than make things look spectacular. See, the thing that I remember about the CG, bear in mind, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie and I have only seen it once, is Caesar's eyes never look right to me. Uh, and I don't know why it is. Maybe because, I, mean, I think, do they give them white sclera to make some of the chimpanzees look more human? I think There's they do, yeah. Something where their eyes doesn't, doesn't look right. They look too much like Phantom Menace Yoda eyes, which uh, <laughs> I'm sure everyone know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> But but the one thing I did like about the, the the film, and which I actually did talk about writing up for Tet Zoo, was by the way, two minute rule is in effect. Keep an eye on. One thing I liked about the, the movie was I got the distinct impression. I meant to check this up and never did. Is that the individual uh, great ape characters, in particular, I th- only the chimpanzees. I can't remember the same for the gorillas or the orangutans, but the chimpanzees and bonobos. They look to be based on genuine, world-famous chimpanzee and bonobos that have been like Jane Goodall's ones that she's written about, and Kanzi, the famous like bonobo, and one of them looked a bit like Oliver, the famous bipedal um, Schwanferdii chimpanzee, who was alleged for a time to be not a chimpanzee but a humanzee. Um, you know, you've heard of humanzees; they're like alleged human I chimpanzees. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I got the distinct impression that they had modelled these individual characters after these real, uh, real apes. But um, whether they have, I don't know. Haven't checked it out. But um, yeah. And some of the animals that are meant to be bonobos don't look like bonobos. They look more, more like. Uh, or am I getting that confused? Uh, there were a few moments in the movie that I do remember that I quite liked. I, I liked a bit where because um, the animals are being mistreated, aren't they? They're, there's like a, a bully keeper. They're in a lab. Caesar and others are in a lab. And Caesar signs and there's an orangutan that recognises the sign and signs back to him. It's like, well, you, you can speak sign language. It's like, oh, yeah, I can speak sign language too. Oh my god, we can communicate. Which there's real cases where isn't it like chimpanzees have taught other chimpanzees to sign something something like that it's uh i don't think i don't know if it's ever happened cross species uh in terms of like sign language taught to non-human primates by other non-human primates but because obviously there's cases in uh, the real world of animals learning vocal signals or visual signals of other species you know that's all over the place but um yeah interesting hmm Mm. So what about the actual plot then? Like the uh, super drug that gives them the inter- oh. the drug that gives them the super intelligence and that sort of stuff. Isn't it like a handy super drug that doesn't it do like two or three jobs at once? It like kills people and makes super intelligent non-human apes yeah. and 
makes I don't know something like that. I'm not not going to I'm not going to go and read a plot synopsis on Wikipedia, but so uh, it occurs to me right now that Rise of the Planet of the Apes, of course, is a prequel. Yeah, and I think the rules about prequels apply. Oh, and we know what you think about prequels. Yeah, they're dumb. <laughs> they're always dumb. And they often ruin what is meant to be a bit mysterious. Uh-huh. So, you're meant to think... You're meant to wonder about these things. You know, let's take the classic movie. Charlton Heston arrives in... On a planet where there's these apes, right? Spoilers! Spoilers! <laughs> Turns out to be Earth. You're meant to wonder, how did that happen? Oh my god, I was wrong. <laughs> it was Earth all along. Oh, you finally made a monkey. <laughs> you finally made a monkey. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, these things... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I hate every ape I see. <laughs> chimpanzee. I hate a chimpanzee. <laughs> Um, yeah. Would you go and see that if it was a musical? Because yes! I know I would. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's meant to be mysterious. You're meant to wonder about that. And once you're told super drug something, 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 it's all dumb. It's stupid. It's like Prometheus. It's like Prometheus. It's dumb. Nah, Prometheus. It's not as bad as Prometheus, but it, it, don't bother. It's stupid. Uh, you know what movie I've been watching on DVD a lot lately? What's that? Prometheus. <laughs> Why? I just wanted to remind myself how bad it was. <laughs> okay, I think we have to move on from this. Okay. Unless you have something else to say. Um, there was one other sort of like fairly intelligent biological comment, biology-oriented comment I had, which was that so at the end of the movie, Caesar actually vocalizes. He actually speaks to. Is it Marky Mark? I don't know whoever's in there. He's not in that movie, is it? Whoever the main human character is, I can't remember now. Um, and um, when he speaks, he has this like real kind of <sighs> sort of airy kind of squeaky voice. Not not no, not squeaky. That's the wrong word. I mean, like it's a it's meant to be a, a voice that comes from like a great sort of like a lot of air behind it, like a lot of resonance involved in his voice. And um, and I. I could be completely wrong. Maybe I dreamt this, but my recollection was that they had. It's we know that um, you know because people did loads of horrible experiments during the fifties and sixties, in particular, on trying to get chimpanzees, in particular, to you know surgical modification of the tongue and throat and stuff to get them to make sorts of sounds that we can. And of course, they just they just can't do it. They lack the the anatomy that enables them to do it. So. Um, Non-human uh, hominids have like a series of uh, like laryngeal kind of sacs that like spread out across the chest. Obviously, most prominent in orangutans, so they have this like big inflatable neck pouch thing. And I wondered if they if they knew that they did their homework on non-human ape anatomy and knew about this these laryngeal air sacs and were running with the idea that rather than doing the vocalizing in the larynx, they was powered by these laryngeal air sacs which is why he has this really uh, sort of 
You give, exactly. the, you give them a lot of credit, Darren. <laughs> but they do do some homework. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, there's someone I follow on Twitter who is like who who's a, a primatologist and is the um, you know um, uh, the uh, advised the people on the dawn of the planet the apes apes on the look and the look and feel of the apes, which apparently is really good. But you know how this works, right? I mean, we've we've all done this, right? Being consultants on uh, oh, on that, the, yeah, uh, and they just they're, they're mining for inspiration. They're not looking for direction. So maybe someone suggested that to them, and they thought, yeah, that sounds cool. Maybe, mm. yeah. That ha- that has happened a lot of times where I think, oh, maybe X Y Z, maybe maybe one and two, and it's like, no, we just did that because it looked cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's generally the reason they want. They they've got an idea of what looks cool, what sounds cool. Can we justify that? Or they mining all the things we know for bits that look cool. It's like um, I've never liked the term. This is a bit out of left field. I've never liked the term quote mining. Uh, yeah, because it makes it sound like it's a real quote, which it sort of is, but that you're just finding the. The, the gold there, if you see what I mean, and it's, it's quote mining is actually kind of the opposite. You're taking it, well, not the opposite. You're taking things out of context. You, it should be called mm-hmm. quote chopping or quote, I don't know, something like that. And I think that's what happens with films when they go ask a bunch of experts about stuff. They tend to do something akin to quote mining. They're not looking for the, the gold. They sort of chopping things out of context into a. <laughs> That was a bit shocking. So it was Willow, my dog. Darren was just attacked by his dog. The camera shook. There was this rather rather ominous noise, which sounded a bit like... There's a dog barking. It didn't sound like a dog to me. Well, it's, I can tell you what. It sounded like the thing or something. Okay, well, we'll leave well, it Well, actually, careful. Darren. Is it ah! like a face hanging down underneath him or something? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um yes. So yeah. yeah. Uh no, I don't I don't it's possible, but if if it was, I think it was probably done in this way. I don't know. Right. Maybe maybe I'm not giving him enough credit because clearly everyone says in the new one they they've really worked hard on it. Right? Uh, I dislike the fact as well that they're it just unrealistically this is one of those things where the rules of physics just don't apply because you see chimpanzees and other apes not that dissimilar in mass to people performing like unbelievable acts, like jumping from, you know, treetop to treetop and and doing things like that, un- unrealistic feats of agility, which yeah. just aren't aren't possible for animals like that. You know, gibbons, yeah, they can chuck themselves around in trees, but a gibbon weighs, I don't know, I don't know, seven kilos, whereas a chimpanzee is like thirty or forty or something, and and they're not built the same anyway. So yeah, but to yeah. be fair, they do show humans doing. Impossible act of physical daring as well, don't they? And so, if you times that by four, because chimpanzee is four times stronger than a man, then yeah, so it can jump four times further. Yeah, that's the way it works. That's physics, people. That's physics. Facts. (laughs) Fact. Scales to the two-thirds power. Right. Right. Let's Uh, move on to. I hope you're happy with that, Patrick. If not, well. Oh, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long time coming. Yeah. Um, right, first of August. 
Actually, have we done this one before, Darren? Uh, the Quetzalcoatlus one? The Tyrannosauroid animals, vestigial arms. Oh, um, you're further down the page than I am. Uh, the one from... Vestigial arms. From the one from Tom Kennedy. Tom Kennedy. Bottom of the page. Okay. Sensor, uh, uh, sensor, sensor, sensor. What about... About tyrannosaurid animals with possibly vestigious arms. Okay, it's a question about theropods, basically, and theropod arms. Uh, is it likely that tyrannosauroids... Are you going to read this out? Shall I, shall I do it? But I'm going to kind of, like, adapt it to, for easier... Um, okay. What do you call it? Things. Uh, brain communication stuff, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you're, you're, really you're really good at that. You're really good at that. Um... <laughs> uh, Okay, so he's asking about the small arms of tyrannosauroid theropods. How plausible is it they could have that that these that these arms could have had a role in the carrying of eggs or young? Seems to me that whales lost them a lot faster. Although perhaps whales had a stronger incentive in which to lose their limbs. I was wondering if anyone suggested this before. No new ideas under the sun. Well, <laughs> it seems to me they're just the right size for carrying T-Rex pups and eggs. <laughs> I suppose if they were being adapted for this special purpose, their claws might change shape or perhaps be more blunted. So in other words, would we see some specialization in the forelimbs of Tyrannosaurus if they were used in carrying eggs or babies? Mm, okay. Well, question, good. Yeah. <laughs> me improve you low language. <laughs> me fail English. Impossible. Um... We th- this does this is a direct follow-on from the uh, you know the the discussion we had a couple of episodes back about theropod dinosaur arms and their function I suppose because didn't we have a long long spiel about tyrannosaur specifically tyrannosauroid tyrannosaurid forelimb reduction we did didn't we we did that's why I was asking whether we'd had this question before I think we've even had two questions on it so I think this might be our third. So, so what's new here is a new theory to discuss. Yeah. Hypothesis, so Tom I Kennedy, should say. Tom Kennedy, we partially refer you to the answer given previously. But, well, no, we don't, because that was, we were saying that, our general, you know, come out of that was that the, the arms probably are vestigial. They don't have a particularly important role, but they might have, I don't know, they might have some sort of unimportant thing going on. But, um, but yeah, do you have anything smart to say in response to this idea about them carrying eggs or babies? Or do you want me to say it all? Do you want me to be the bad guy? No, you, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking about being the bad guy. Um, well, I would say that um, we would have to, with, with an idea like this, we would have to look at what evidence we actually have in terms of like the parental behavior of extinct theropod dinosaurs. And we're not exactly tripping over tyrannosaur nests and eggs and babies, but based on, <laughs> as in, there are, I think, probably none, or, you know, a couple of alleged eggs that from, from China have been said to be from Tarbosaurus or from Mongolia. But um, everything we seem to know about non-bird theropod dinosaurs involves the construction of, like, nest mounds, the putting of eggs on the ground, and the babies probably being precocious, able to look after themselves, run around, maybe with some assistance from parents, maybe with some care from parents, but maybe not. We actually aren't really sure what's going on there. But um, I can't see a good reason why you would think that, therefore, a group of extinct dinosaurs would uh, adopt something entirely novel, like like carrying eggs. It does. It is. It's not in keeping with all the uh, all the evidence we have. Bear in mind, we have definite nests and eggs and juveniles of 
uh, megalosauroids. There's a there's a couple of tar- torvosaurus, sorry, torvosaurus uh, nesting sites where where eggs are definitely laid in in nests. And um, there's there's like loads of silurosaurs, uh, like truodontids and possible donicosaurs and oviraptorosaurs. So these animals, megalosauroids and silurosaurs, uh, and then birds as well, they bracket tyrannosaurs in the phylogeny. So therefore, we have to assume that tyrannosaurs were doing the same thing they were, which is what we would predict anyway, based on what we know about dinosaurs in general. And also, then I would say that the idea they might be carrying eggs or babies, that's probably a fairly what we call maladaptive idea it's probably not a good idea to if you're a super predator that goes around picking fights with other dinosaurs and biting things with your face i don't think you want to be carrying eggs or babies um in your little arms so and then finally does it look like the arms or hands or claws do they look suited for um the carrying of of eggs or babies and i can't see any reason why you know i can't see any features that would be consistent with that no. Um. So, yeah, I, I, you've got to ask: Are they adapted to anything like this? And I just can't see how they are. And I don't see why having smaller ones is better. If you were mm. carrying around babies, I think you just want bigger arms. Um. <coughs> <coughs> and I think this just goes back to the uh, my increasingly firm theory. <laughs> hypothesis <laughs> is that they're not they're not used for anything they are vestigial they're not a useful organ and um there was a talk at svpca which was famous for being very difficult to follow because it was quite a complicated subject um but it was about developmental modules right so oh right yeah um so was it by someone who normally works on trackways no okay I don't think so. And, of course, I didn't know I was going to mention this, so I'm afraid I don't have her name here. But So the basic idea was that there are developmental modules, and if you interrupt one through something, the other one, the thing that's developmentally linked, will also be interrupted. Or So, if something goes wrong with that developmental module, you'll get expressions of that deformity. It's called, it's called pleiotroism. Yep. And so she was saying you could get to this through asymmetry, right? So you could see what things might be developmentally linked in extinct animals looking at morphology alone by looking at asymmetry. So if you find that something is unusually small on one side, let's, let's take an example which I actually thought about, plesiosaur limbs, for example. So you find that the right foreflipper is smaller than the left foreflipper. You sh- if they're developmentally linked to the hind flippers, then you'd expect that the right hind flipper will be smaller than the left hind flipper. So there'll be the the, the modules will express the. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. <sighs> um, I wish I could think. Of, I wish I could think of a more um, uh, surprising <coughs> example, but. I'm wondering whether you could do something like this with um, tyrannosaur limbs to see what they're developmentally linked to. The thing is, they're probably decoupled. They're probably very much decoupled from the hind limbs, so you couldn't tell whether... I mean, 
it's very unlikely that you'll get an asymmetry in the hind limbs and then the forelimbs. To, it doesn't it doesn't really help you. But to explain things like um, the length of the fingers and things, I'm wondering whether there's what some way of getting at this. What are the fingers developmentally linked to? Why are they so? Because they seem to be unusually long for um, such a small arm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm trying to think of one. Um, I believe that in some of the work that's been published on uh, digit embryology in birds, people have linked. Is work by Gallus and colleagues? They linked digit form, digit expression with something, something in the vertebrae. Yeah, this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there's also some work being done on sloths linking the position of the junction between the, the cervicothoracic junction and the mm, yeah there's a, there's a few things like this so but, for yeah so tera- the limbs could be there because they're developmentally linked to something which is somewhere else on the body that we just haven't really thought of um, and you, and the, but her novel suggestion was that you could get through to this through asymmetry. But the problem with asymmetry and dinosaur fossils is that they're all crushed and mangled, and they're not symmetrical at <clears> all. <throat> so it's difficult and to get to that sort of thing. Yeah, and size. sample size is too small. Um, although, yeah, well, some dinosaurs it's probably not, but yeah, tyrannos- large tyrannosaurs it probably is. Um, well, Tyrannosaurus rex is well represented, but even so, you're still yeah, well represented. Sample is too, means, too small. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thirty-five animals, which is yeah. How many have four limbs as well? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah, you know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we could probably do it some, with something like I don't know, Protoceratops if someone went out and got it off of them, or some other like other Ceratopsians aren't there? There's hundreds of individuals. Although you'd you'd need to know which bones belong to which ones. So these great big mangled bone beds probably aren't any good. Yeah, yeah. So if if, if it sounded then like I said, there were two. Tyrannosaurus rex specimens with forelimbs. Sorry, that's not what I was trying to say because there's, I don't know, there's, there's quite a few more than that. I don't know how many, but there's more like, I don't know, over 10. But um, yeah, so it's, I, you're, yeah. But the, the, the basic, the, the, the take home there is that we can't, we can't answer that kind of question. But um, I think that's, yeah, that's an extra level of complexity that you've added, quite rightly, I would say. But that's not something we need to worry about in evaluating a hypothesis like, are the are the limbs are the forelimbs of Tyrannosaurus specialised for carrying babies? Because I think there's other more simple tests that we can apply that say that it's unlikely, so unlikely as to be really not worthy of proper consideration. Yeah. Uh, so I guess ho- what I was saying, what I was trying to get to is, um, how do we test these various hypotheses about um, Tyrannosaur limbs? And I think that's sort of got to be almost the thing you think of with the explanation. So thinking of something they could do. I think at the same time you've got to think, okay, how would we know that they did that or didn't do that? Maybe mm. Perhaps more importantly, how would we know if they didn't do that? Um, so I think, yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to get at. You know, what what's the tests for these things? I think that's the critical point now. It's not so much hypothesis generation, it's hypothesis elimination. Yeah, yeah. My <laughs> policy on this is just sit back and wait for the fossils that's the best <laughs> yeah but we're never never going to get the fossils here are we yeah i know yeah. that's the problem no, you, yeah you well could, we could get some nests yes we won't find a tyrannosaurus with little eggs 
with eggs. <laughs> or, yeah, we'll never find out. that. We'll never find that. That's a, that's a fairly but, safe guess. Yeah. Tom's um, Tom's question also has this interesting little line. It, it seems to me that whales lost them a lot faster, but he means hind limbs. Mm. Um, interestingly, however, so classically, so 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 our knowledge of the diversity of fossil whales has obviously kept in step with our discovery of new lineages on the phylogeny, and uh, classically it was thought that, that you know there's like a bunch of archaic sort of amphibious proto whales like. Pachycetids and protocetids and ambulocetids that are known, many of which were discovered as recently as the 1990s. Then you've got Neocete, which is the torpedo-shaped whales that includes all the modern ones, the crown whales, as well as things like Dorudon and Bacillosaurus, these like more torpedo-shaped, fully aquatic whales. And then in the 1990s, it was discovered that those kinds of stem whales, like Bacillosaurus and stuff, it was discovered that they've got little hind limbs. So, like, wow, hind limbs were attained all the way up to the origin of Neocete. But then they were lost... Presum- Hold on, this, maybe that clade isn't called Neocete. Whatever that clade is called, Pelagicete. I think Neocete is crown cetaceans. Um, it was, wow, these tiny hind limbs are attained all the way up to these, like, torpedo-shaped whales that are close to the origins of Neocete. It's just been published... Uh, literally, I don't know, like a month or two ago, that early crown whales still had hind limbs as well because a paper has been published on a cetothere. Cetothere is a group of baleen whales that wouldn't lo- have looked tremendously different from living baleen whales. Early cetotheres, I think from the Oligocene, still had hind limbs. So there you go. Hind limbs are actually retained in fully aquatic cetaceans for quite a long time without any diagrams in front of me i couldn't tell you how long i reckon we're talking about like 15 to 20 million years after whales became fully aquatic they've still got little hind limbs so um yeah. that's yeah and i think that's a fair point because uh how long was it that tyrannosaurs were evolving um past the point where they're well let, let's say that they were vestigial they weren't useful um, yeah. How long were they evolving not using their limbs? Because, you know, stem tyrannosauroids, am I getting that right? Tend to have fairly long, long um, forelimbs. <clears throat> well, you shouldn't, shouldn't use stem in that context, of course. But, um, yeah, non-tyrannosaurid tyrannosauroids, yeah, you're, talking about, you're talking about a time span. I mean, you've got, like, advanced, big-bodied uh, tyrannosauroids. Yes, I shouldn't use stem. Yeah, just slap yourself on the wrist. It's, uh, the last, they're, they're in the last, like, I don't know... 25, 30 million years, the Cretaceous, something like that. So um, that's the period of time over which you've got, the, I, I guess, the most profound um, reduction in the forelimbs, I suppose. Yeah, so it's not uh, necessarily that we, the pressure on them is probably not as great as it was for whales. So it's not really surprising. I don't know. Mm. But again, you know, I think that ways of testing these things need to be thought about rather than more hypothesis generation, more ways to test them test what the various things were they functional were they not functional i think that's the main thing to get at yep and we should say we should say also in the con- in this context having mentioned whale height whale hind limbs and redundancy and function and stuff is of course some people have indeed suggested that these hind limbs in whales did have a function that they somehow helped the animals to engage during copulation or something but i don't know about that i've always been a little bit suspicious of that idea not really convinced by it. I, I wonder if they are just vestigial because yeah. you know you've got to lose your hind limbs at some stage. And originally, when this 
mating hypothesis was suggested uh, early 1990s in the context of hind limbs and bacillosaurus uh, Gingrick, Phil Gingrick, the guy who was um, proposing it and, and colleagues they were saying that bacillosaurids which are very long bodied stem whales they were saying they needed these little hind limbs because they're really long serpentine animals how on earth would they ever be able to align their genitals it's like well hold on <laughs> <laughs> like, there are lots of limbless animals that are able to align their genitals very well thank you very much and they don't need little leggy things at the back um, and if that's true Okay, now explain hind limbs in cetotheres, because cetotheres aren't long serpentine. Well, okay, bacillosaurs aren't really serpentine, but they're not like super long-bodied whales. They're like regular proportioned whales. So you're going to tell me that they really need little leggies to align their genitals as well? It's like, Yeah, I think what we're dealing with here is sort of hyper... What's it, uh, Adaptationalism? Yeah. Like everything, yeah. every bit of anatomy has a use... Yeah. has a current use and is there to do functional things is uh, it's false i think so i have had I, I i have met adaptationists and have had foisty arguments with them um and it's yeah i i i can't i can't accept that it's right because i think there are compelling there are compelling reasons to accept exaptation from the living world exaptation being the phenomenon whereby a structure has a role within the context of one function but then it proves useful for something else and selection leads to it being evolved you know for something out for for another for another function um and yeah i think geckos are one of my favorite examples that let's not start talking about geckos because uh, yeah we'll go off enough yeah so yeah. yeah okay shall we do one more cash for question so uh, thank you tom kennedy for that yeah. for that, that interesting question this is this is like the theropod arm show, <laughs> Probably like three hours on theropod arms in various podcasts. I'm sure we'll come back to it because actually, yeah, I, I would like to I would like to hear from listeners um, some ideas of how to test these things, right? Because we've had the question three times. Okay, so yeah, let's 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 talk about some ways you might test this, some mm. ingenious ways with the fossil record we've got. Uh, or even that you can imagine the fossil record going in the future. You know, realistic expectations. What what sorts of things are we looking for here to help eliminate some of these hypotheses? And no time machines allowed. Yes. Okay, so uh, one more cash for question. Let's do this one. Alexander Rees? Yeah. I've noticed that over time... Depictions of Quetzalcoatl seem to have changed. Earlier artwork and even the BBC Walking with Dinosaurs seems to show a non-tapering bill with a sharp termination at the tip, while small modern reconstructions have a curved crested skull. What's responsible for this? Uh, do you want to go? Well, I want to hear you talk about it because you have uh, you're a professional artist and you have specifically reconstructed Quetzalcoatl with reference to the holotype material, right? Yes, and here's the problem that no one we're, we're, all the reconstructions you see are of Quetzalcoatlus northropi, the big one, right? No one's specifically reconstructing Quetzalcoatlus species. Spur. Spur. Take that, Keezy. Lug, lug, lug. And the material is not described, and it is. They're rel- working on it. They're, They're working, working on it. They are working on it. It is not yet described and is relatively scrappy. Um, so the truth is, I don't think we actually know what the skull of the big Quetzalcoatlus looks like. Um, 
and there is figured in the what am I the Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs by Wellenhoff in nineteen ninety one a jaw tip uh upper and lower jaws that seem to show a relatively what's the word I'm looking for? Tall um mm. jaw. So non tapering. Um and that is the jaw that is reconstructed by Sibic in that book as belonging to Quetzalcoatlus Northropi and is subsequently copied in many places, including, I think, the BBC Walking with Dinosaurs, so I don't remember that very well. Yeah, now, since, since then, Quetzalcoatlus Spa material has yeah, been yeah, leaking yeah. out, and it seems to have a long, low jaw tip and rest of the skull. Possibly curved, possibly not. It's a bit difficult to tell the degree of curvature. Some show straighter jaws, some show more curved ones and I think probably the straighter ones are more accurate my earlier ones were curved based on photos that I had but I'm not sure about that um, and so that was considered more definitive material and since then these have been scaled up to Quetzalcoatlus Northropi but it's not clear that Quetzalcoatlus Northropi has the same shaped skull as Quetzalcoatlus Spa so that original reconstruction with the higher beak, for all we know, could be the right one, right? Does do you think that sounds? Yeah, yeah. That's it's 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 difficult to know where you can go. Well, yeah, it's difficult to know what we can say given that we don't know what's kind of what's kind of known. But so so I think I think reconstructions of Quetzalcoatlus went through like kind of three kind of phases, and we should say kind of have to mention Mark Witten again. Jesus Christ, it's like the fourth time in this episode. Mark specifically spoke about all this at Tetzucon, didn't he? He gave a talk about the history of uh, the changing face of Asdarkids over the years. So original reconstructions of Quetzalcoatlus produced in the late 1970s, showing it with a, a short skull, sometimes with teeth, and with a bony nubbin on the back of the head, were totally fictional and invented because basically people needed to illustrate something. And it's like, well, what does Quetzalcoatlus look like? We don't know. Yeah. Here's a picture of a giant pterosaur. Then... As John said, then there's this picture of this thing with a relatively, relatively short and deep face. Short and deep. Well, the 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 part of the jaws anterior to the nasal and torbital fenestra, the giant opening on the side of the skull, that part of the skull is relatively short compared to what you see in other reconstructions. And that short-headed animal. That's. I'm just repeating everything you've already said, haven't I? Yeah, it's not actually what? short because it, well, it is somewhat Comparat it is comparatively yeah. comparatively short. Still a long skull, but yeah. compared to other reconstructions, that animal we don't think is Quetzalcoatlus anymore. We think that's something else. And for a while, that was thought to be a Thalassodromid, a Tupacswara-like animal, but it's not for various complicated reasons to do with the exact shape of the the bone above the nasal and torbital fenestra. It is an Asdarkid. Again, this is stuff Mark's written about, and the actual true Quetzalcoatlus <sighs> yeah Quetzalcoatlus jaw based on Quetzalcoatlus spur the alleged little one which is going to be named as a new species at some point even though some people think it's not a species but it's a juvenile the big one uh, that seems to have much longer more sl slender snout so the question is what's the real big one like yeah I'm just repeating everything you've already said Why yeah but I, I think I'll just say that um, the it's not that we yeah it was <laughs> yeah, it's confusing <laughs> For a while, it was considered that that, that sort of sh deeper, shorter jaw 
didn't belong to Quetzalcoatlus, but I think that's much less clear these days. Now we know a bit more about the diversity of giant Quetzal, giant Ashdarkids, that that very well could be the same thing as as Quetzalcoatlus and Orthropi. That could be its jaw. And it certainly is. It's in the right size class, isn't it? So there's either two very large um, as darkards around, or that is the jaw of Quetzalcoatlus Northrop. Is that right? Oh no, wait, no, that specimen's not not that big. Oh, it I thought it was. Be, no, I should have a look at it. It's 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 the TMM four two four eight nine two specimen, I think. And how long is it? Uh, my recollection is it's only like well less than thirty centimeters. It's not that big. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah. What's it? It's 80 centimetres long. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So I would, yeah, wow. I'll reiterate, I think that could be Quetzalcoatlus right. or Right. That could be. So maybe, so maybe Quetzalcoatlus, that's, that would be a turn up for the books, wouldn't it? That's a, so the, for a long time we thought that was wrong based on uh, basically leaked information on Quetzalcoatlus species, but now it looks like that could very well be Quetzalcoatlus or and the original notion that everyone got from the Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs could be right. Yeah, but we should say that there are papers like in the works right now, which like literally in the works right now, which uh, like throw some spanners in works for this kind of stuff because because it affects. Because at the moment, if you ask most people who work on as darker pterosaurs, ninety five percent of them, and I'm kind of having a bit of fun here because it's like three of them, but most of these people would would have thought that. Big Quetzalcoatlus is basically a scaled-up version of Quetzalcoatlus species. Quetzalcoatlus spur, the the slender-jawed one. Yeah. But yeah, what John is suggesting is that maybe that, yeah. But if if Quetzalcoatlus species does grow up to, with like to to into a big one with like a long pointed snout, then the the that TMM four two four eight nine short snouted one would still be still be something else, but. Uh, yeah, then there's a bit I can't say because based on what we think we know about some of the big-ass darkids, some things are looking more likely than others. And another complication here, as I shouldn't mention this, but I'm going to, is that Hadzogopteryx, this giant Romanian pterosaur, um, you know, stuff, there's some key stuff being worked on right now about, about the look of this animal. Um, there is a, uh, I believe it's a, a rostrum tip from that animal, which hasn't been published yet. I saw it when I was in um, Hungary, I think it was, not Romania. But whatever, it's long and pointy, rather than it's not shaped like the, the shorter TMM4489 specimen. So this is typical of the mess we get ourselves in when we're working on animals that haven't been described properly, and there's all kinds of like sociocultural, you know, <laughs> human really reasons for that. Um, and we're desperately trying to, you know, work things out on the basis of not brilliant specimens. You know, the giant Quetzalcoatlus. We 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 when when did we do this? We did this like really early on in the history of Tetsu podcast, didn't we? Mm. It's known from well, it's originally described from like a humerus and one yeah. or two other bits, and and yeah. and the, yeah, there's like a the number of bones known for it is not. It's like nothing like a nothing like half a skeleton. Maybe not even a third or a quarter of a skeleton. It's uh... and it's generally the case, as I say. The the more stuff we discover, the more diverse animals t- 
tend to be, as as you might expect. But sorry, actually, we had a bit of discussion about this SPPTA. Diverse and disparate have slightly different meanings in, in yeah. jargonese. So the more disparate animals tend to become, yep. the more di- more we discover. So it wouldn't be surprising that large ashdarkoid pterosaurs are actually quite disparate in many ways. I don't know. The truth is, well, we just don't really know. But there you go. That is that is that is what we're thinking, but yep. I can't I can't say why. So yeah. for the yeah, for, we should say diversity is supposed to relate to like number of taxa, and disparity refers to diverse uh, <laughs> refers to amount of shape variation. Yes. So like, you can be a diverse group but not be very disparate. And a small group would be highly disparate. Yes. So among the several pterosaur things I wanted to mention, just so briefly, there's a new paper came out the last couple of days by Cohen Stein and uh, Edina Prondvai. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Edina, Edina Prondvai. And it's on the discovery of medullary bone in uh, pterosaurs. <laughs> but there's something really weird about it, which uh, indicates that it's not homologous with the medullary bone of dinosaurs. And that's all I can remember. Haven't haven't read the paper yet. So medullary bone in the mandible of Baconi Draco, which is this as it's definitely an asdarkoid, but whereabouts it goes within asdarkoidia is controversial. Different studies, different results. But um yeah. We're talking about pterosaurs too much. We should stop there. Because no who likes pterosaurs? Pterosaurs terrible animals. Everyone that listens to the Tetsu podcast hates pterosaurs. So <laughs> Right. Okay. I think we should. We've done nearly two hours now, so let's let's do our final bit. Final bit. Final bit. Welcome to the bit of the show that we like to call the final bit. <laughs> Noah. Oh God. Okay. Now I've got a little. I've got. I, I can set the tone for this. Go on. Which is a review I found like, by uh, Jim Sh- 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 Shembury. Shembury. Yeah. Which is on Rotten Tomatoes, um, which is where I found it. It wasn't actually on Rotten Tomatoes, but you can go to Rotten Tomatoes to find it. So this is a review of Noah. A waterlogged turkey. An epic disaster of truly biblical proportions. Bloated, gloomy, super self-serious, and worst of all, boring. This film is so dull and pretentious it's likely to make atheists convert just so they can pray to God to save them. Now... I rarely have I read a review that is so uncannily accurate. This is exactly what this film is. Well, at least I thought so, anyway. Well, yeah, in an unusual move, I agree wholly with your take on this film. Um, I thought it was... I thought it was pretty awful, and I was surprised to see that on things like Internet Movie Database it gets 6 out of 10, because I would have given it significantly less than that. I found it really boring, overlong, very depressing. There wasn't a single glimmer of anything approaching happiness. I'm not sure if there should be in the Noah story, because it's, isn't it about like a global catastrophe and everybody died apart from Noah and his family? But, um, well, and, and the animals. Oh, and, well, the animals that lived. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but God, it was just terrible. It was just terrible. It was so... And it was all... Why didn't they film it in black and white? Because it was all grey and black, apart from the flames on the... Oh, yeah. Spoilers! Spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. Did you know? Because this is my, this, I've been telling people about the film. Because I think everybody's familiar with the Noah story. Did you know, I say to people, did you know that the, the Ark wasn't built by Noah and his family? It was built by giant stone monsters that are called... Are they called the Watchers? Yeah. These giant stone creatures 
that well actually they were meant to be fiery angels yeah, that did something that made god angry yeah. and so he made them crash into the ground and turn into stone monsters yeah, and they, they had like it. a stony covering so that they melted the ground that they hit and they got covered in stone. Yeah. So, the Russell Crowe as Noah, like, I don't really have a problem with that because as, as Russell Crowe himself has said, Noah, the portrayal of Noah in like children's books and stuff probably doesn't reflect the sort of character that Noah maybe should be. I don't know. Jennifer, Jennifer Connolly, as as Name, his his wife, Jennifer Connolly. She's uh, she, she's in the, one of the one of the Hulk movies, the Hulky Hulk or the Incredible Hulk or whatever it's called. Well, uh, <laughs> wasn't she also in uh, most famously um, a Beautiful Mind? I thought she. Well, oh, no, isn't she the one from um, the Matrix? No. <laughs> Yes, she was. She's not in the Matrix. Who's in the Matrix? Well, I can't remember her name. The lady who plays Trinity. That's yeah. not. That's not Jennifer Connolly. I've, I've, I can't remember her name right now. But um, no, I'm. I'm afraid not. Okay, it doesn't uh, really but, matter anyway. So Anthony Hopkins as Methuselah was was quite funny, and Hermione Noni Granger in it. What Hermione Granger in Noah? That was a bit weird. And the best bit, Ray Winston. <laughs> as as Tubal Cain. <laughs> so so if you haven't seen the movie, get this. Tubal Cain, who I believe is a character mentioned in the Bible, something with metalwork. Tubal Cain is a king, a nasty king who who leads a nasty horde of people that want to take over the ark. And uh, he manages to smuggle aboard the ark somehow and he eats a lizard and gets injured and has a big fight with Noah. <laughs> 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 it's hilarious. Um <laughs> Yeah. What what was truly remarkable in the film, though, is that just how hilarious a lot of these things were didn't seem hilarious at the time. Felt more <laughs> dull, plodding, and depressing. I I never raised a smile once in that movie, which no. and 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 I suppose pe- well people probably most want us to talk about the animals because there's there's endless endless hordes of CG animals. There's no there's not a single real animal in the movie. They're all CG. And well, that can't be true. It's just doves and ravens and stuff. They must be real. No, they don't do what you want. I bet they're fake. Well, I don't know. There might be some real ones, but they weren't good either. When you saw like a great big herd of animals, they were they were terrible. They were not yeah. good. It was not good CG. It's like it wasn't who's good. looking at the animals in in a story in Noah's flood story? No one looks at the freaking animals, right? Oh, I did. I was no, specifically looking no. for... Yeah, well, of course you yeah. did. That's what everyone's looking at. The animals <laughs> are the whole point of the story. Oh, irony. I see what we did there. Yeah. 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 They really are. And I thought that that was what... Uh, to take the focus so relentlessly off the animals was mm. uh, profoundly mistaken, I think. <laughs> Profoundly mistaken. <laughs> that's that's so indeed they... everything about this film was. But... And all, all the animals go to sleep... So, 40 days and 40 nights in a big box on the sea. Or as we say now, 40 days. What did I just say? 40 days? Oh, say 40 okay. nights. It seems a little redundant. I mean, it does give you an extra bit of information. It gives you 12 hours extra 80, information. 80 days. Maybe it's 80 days. 80 days, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this length of time, more than a month, and the birds sleep for more than a month. 
wow, that's a lot of hi- the birds back then did a lot more hibernating than they do now. Yeah, but um, God let them do it, didn't? They? Oh, actually, wasn't it? No, it wasn't that. They gave him some sort of sleeping powder, didn't? Yeah, they 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 made him go to sleep, during which time they don't need any water or to defecate or <laughs> or eat, mm. but. But then you suppose, and if you look carefully at the animals, yeah, they were a little bit clever. They deliberately included, there's some thylacines in there. There's some things that are based on macrochenia. And Darren Aronofsky, the director, has said that they deliberately took real animals and made them look slightly different from living ones to sort of imply that there was, because they were doing things to make it look like the world was younger. For example, you could see stars in the daytime, stuff like that. Um because there's a weird antelope that Tubal Cain kills, which isn't, you know, not a real antelope. And that big lizard thing, yeah, that wasn't a real lizard. Um, <laughs> and Darren Aronofsky, like, uh, knowing that Aronofsky was involved in this, I thought we might see something special. Mm. But Black, Sw- Black Swan is, is the other film of his that I know, which is a weird film, but kind of weird in a good way. It's quite memorable because it's so peculiar some of the stuff that happens in it you've seen black swan i haven't seen it ah oh, uh, take a drink everyone glug 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 oh, well no i meant to pr- express a negative opinion about it i'm not going to because no darren asks about, about a film that john hasn't seen is one thing on the list oh, okay. and then john expresses a negative opinion about a thing he hasn't seen yeah um i think that's partly why this got a bit of a pass from the critics because on rotten tomatoes it gets 77 percent or something like this which is just way too high it's terrible it's a really bad film it's virtually unwatchable um and why why does it get such a rating and i think it's because of aronofsky's sort of track record people think that he's a good director and maybe he is but he's certainly made a turkey here and mm. so there's lots of little, yeah, as you're saying, there's lots of these sort of neat little details, but they're buried in such a horrible um, film that it's difficult to remember a lot of them. There's the evolution sequence, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Which just reminded me of the Guinness advert. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. And I, and I... <laughs> I thought it was, yeah, it was funny. <laughs> Didn't you laugh all the way through it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you did erase it. We did raise a smile. I didn't. I was like, oh... This looks okay, but it's going to end any second and there's going to be some people fighting each other or killing each other at some point after this, or looking very depressed because of, I don't know, mud and murder and... (laughs) Lava. Not not even good murder, like boring murder. (laughs) Boring, depressing murder, as opposed to sparkly, interesting murder that you normally get in Hollywood. We We were promised disaster porn, and I thought it was going to be... Uh, what's that movie called? Twenty twelve. Yeah, I thought we were going to be twenty twelve, but without limousines and lots without... of animals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and instead, we got some plodding thing. Here's a, th- here's a thing I call Barbarian Land. You know, when they there's lots and lots of these films around where they just seem to be wandering through this this pointless wasteland. wasteland. And what are all these people eating? Where, how, mm. how, where do they get the metal for their swords? It's all very mysterious. And this is exactly what this film was like. The land was completely barren everywhere. It was really dull to look at. It was grey, grim, boring, a bit grimy, but yeah, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And what what were they all meant to be eating? And the answer was each other. Which, as we've discussed before, I think, on the podcast, I don't think that works energetically. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Um, I guess what I really disliked about it was that 
I mean, as I think we've both mentioned on the podcast before, we're both atheists, and obviously neither of us are biblical literalists. <laughs> but, so, it's one of these stories, uh, strangely, I would have preferred them to stick much closer to the original Bible version. Are you still there? <laughs> yes, I'm just listening. Sorry, okay. I'm waiting for you to get to the point. <laughs> Because I think what they did... He's the, still there. <laughs> Somebody prod Nish with I a could, stick. Uh, yeah, well, you were like you were sitting really still too, so Sorry. I couldn't even see that you were moving. And it was like... I'm still has alive. Has the video stopped? And I can't hear, I can't hear you breathing. Somebody um, wake up, Hicks. <laughs> so, they were sat... <clears throat> yeah. The Bible story, although it is a disaster, fi- <laughs> disaster film, disaster story, it has sort of... Uh, joy in it. It's sort of a celebration of animals in some ways. Uh-huh. And because they're the things worth saving. Right. Whereas this one, this film, avoided all the joy of the thing entirely <laughs> and avoid any celebration of the animals except maybe for what for Cain to pick up a lizard and eat Tubal it. Cain. Eat <laughs> it alive. Right, yeah, yeah. the crunchy really? lizard. Yeah, it was just... like one of me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh god, <laughs> and it's so disastrously depressing from that angle. Must have had a huge budget on the talent used in this movie. You think all those like Anthony Hopkins alone probably comes with a price tag of yeah. They blew it all on big actors and spent not enough on what. Whatever makes a good film good. <laughs> Disaster porn. <laughs> yeah. Dis- yeah, that was another thing. The flood, right? Mm. <sighs> so the flood just bursts out of the ground or something? It comes up in big spurts from the ground. I wanted I wanted 2012 walls of water. Yeah, tsunami pure, type thing. Yeah. Pure clean water cascading over the Himalayas. I wanted stuff like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And instead it just sort of comes out of the ground. and Well, it's yeah. raining too. Right. Uh, it rains. It rains a bit. Yeah, uh, there was some. There because was some. You've got to keep that grey, dreary yeah. mood going, and it, then it it bursts yeah. out of the ground, and the ark floats. Hmm. Yeah, oh, there you go. And then at the end, they they hit a mountain, and the end to um, Mount Ararat, of course. Yes, yeah, so some some weird, like I don't know, things that I just didn't get. Some possible metaphors. One of them was. Was uh, Anthony Hopkins wandering around <laughs> looking for berries? Let's find some berries. I ate, yes. ate his liver with some berries and a fine Chianti. What was the, what was the what was the berry thing? The, he finds a little berry, goes yum 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 berry, and then and then it's raining. It's like what was the berry thing? I, I never understood that. That's some sort of veiled metaphor for something. I but, think. <laughs> well, it was all it was all a bit clumsy, wasn't it? Some metaphor, metaphors were way too obvious, and <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. Um, I think the berry thing was a little bit about it's getting harder and harder to find good things in a bad uh, world. Ah, right. I thought it was. Uh, don't, don't worry about what I thought it was about. But um, yeah, the, the, when I the only I don't know. That... I don't know. I could. What did you think it was about? <laughs> no, I better not say. But um, <laughs> the, the, the big fight with the stone monsters, where the stone monsters are like, that reminded me of the. Uh, um, uh, what are the big tree monsters? Ents. Ents. Mm. Ents in one of the Lord of the Rings movies. And probably the books as well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of smashing goblins together and 
and whatever. That was that was very uh, that was that was the best bit in the film. Surprisingly out of place. Yeah, and the nice touch that that the uh, the the angels, seraphim angels. I want to say for some reason when they're redeemed, it's like they they they've like God is like okay, well done, boys. Like you've you've shown your true colours. You come back home now, and they so as they they don't really die. They just leave the stone shackles of earth and. Yeah. Return to the heavens. Yeah, they've done good by slaughtering hundreds, and hundreds, <laughs> done of pe- good hundreds by... and hundreds of people who are, let's remember, just trying to save their own lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, truly, he is a just and wonderful lord. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, yeah. that is the dark side of the story, isn't it? So there's not really any getting <laughs> you've, around that. God you've did, mashed in the brains God of two and kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> he did such a bad job of of, of uh, <laughs> divinely creating the earth that he's decided to wipe the slate clean pretty much yeah. and start from scratch. Well, you know, sometimes I do that. I just rub out a painting <laughs> and I start again. I just think, oh, nope, that's no good. Delete. You're not divine. Look at all that facial hair. Um, that's especially yeah. divine. <laughs> it's like, I've seen I'm pictures like... of God. He's always got a lot of beard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, God, I, I, the new Mister Clean Shaven. <laughs> <laughs> I I do kind of I there is now the the um like the response of critics and religious communities to this film has been very interesting because basically I think people that wanted the word of the Bible to be promoted through this film very unhappy and and hated it and several different versions I understand were made like various test screenings some of which Aronofsky didn't know about but in the end they decided to go with his one so it makes you wonder what the others were going to be about kind of what they were going to be like and to start with I remember I wonder if they cut out those mon- the rock angel things yeah anyway go yeah. ahead the, the rock angel thing reminds me of. Have you seen this spoof series of, of uh, this spoof series of like coloring panels from an alleged coloring book for children that's meant to be about uh, like Ken Ham style creationism, where it's like we don't know that Jesus rode a dinosaur, but he probably did. And there's a picture of Jesus riding a <laughs> Jesus dinosaurs or Jesus ponies, that kind of stuff. And there's a picture from that where it shows as the as the rains cascading down. The whichever of the angels are bad, they're saying they're commanding dinosaurs to attack the ark. Destroy the ark! You ever seen this picture? These dinosaurs attacking the ark. No. Well, it, remi- yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of that. Um, I've totally forgot where I was going with this. Oh yeah, so there was there was some unhappiness early on that it's like, oh great, now people are making Bible movies again. But it's like my first thought to that as someone who doesn't particularly heap great significance on the bible or bible stories is well why not you're allowed to make stories about any other kind of book what, what's wrong with making you know there's some great stories in the bible why can't you make why can't you make movies about them and what's wrong with the idea of a of a movie world populated by you know there's there's been supernatural characters throughout film and stuff what's wrong what's wrong with a movie where there literally is because there's there's meant to be a bit like Jedi's and their connection with the Force. Luminous beings are we, not this food matter. There's, there's literally meant to be. They literally know. They, the Jedi, literally do know that there is a, a, um, a Force that they join, and you can communicate with with long dead individuals through the Force. We know that they know this as a fact. 
in the world of the Noah film, the Noah story indeed in general, we know that people like Noah know that there really is a literal real God that they really can communicate with. Because at the end, he's like, you know, there's God sends some like, <laughs> sonic burst rainbow stuff at the end, right? There's, that's meant to be like literal. Although God seems to be a bit selective in terms of God, he slash she responds to. Um, well, he's in the what, Bible. Okay. There's nothing wrong with a with the idea of a movie where there really is like, a real a real god and that there is this like, yeah. world of uh world of supernatural connection and uh so so why people like the only the only reason people would object to that is if they're like so religious that they object to the uh, object to their ideas being uh what's the right word i don't know commercialized or put up there for mockery because basically this film has been mocked a lot it's so bad um, or because they think that uh, that it, that promote that that making a movie about a, the Bible is somehow promoting Christianity, which of course it isn't. Because you come away from <laughs> what it's like, it's not. Well, it depends. It depends on how bad that film is. <laughs> but it was just terrible. It was just awful. And what do I like about it? Ray Winston's accent. I'm Tubal Cain. <laughs> so there you go if you've seen it already I hope you agreed <laughs> if you haven't uh, if you haven't don't just do not <laughs> why not go and watch it and let us know what you think <laughs> well, we not. could say that you know normally I'd say go and see it if it was bad because well why not you know at least you'll have some fun laughing at it or something but this is a long film, and it really is three hours of your life you won't get back. And it's was it really three hours? We well, it was wasted. something like that. It felt like six, though. It was almost <laughs> unbelievably boring. It was. It was long. Yeah. We wasted a whole. We could have spent that evening watching a far more interesting movie. So, but then you don't know until you find out, as they say. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Right, That's true. That's true. We should do it. We should do a Tetsu podcast rating out of ten. Yeah, on. um, one. I mean, one. Yeah, I. If it was any worse, like literally worse, more inept, it would be funny. If it was any better, it deserves a two. Yeah. So it's literally as bad as you can make a film. I'll give it three because I like the Stone Angels. <laughs> I'm not going to give it a pass for that because I think without those it just would have been oh, I don't know yeah maybe maybe no and no, I'm still going to go with one I can't imagine a worse film or at least in a less enjoyable film to sit through because mm-hmm. there are obviously lots of bad films out there that are kind of funny to watch right? loads yeah so yeah. there you go that's an so average of two <laughs> <laughs> In case you weren't listening, the movie we were talking about was called No. It was directed by Darren Aronofsky and was distributed by, I don't know, a film distributor. So, <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> who all ought to be ashamed of themselves. Who should be very, very ashamed of themselves. And they've done a great service for the movie industry. And uh, d- d- another interesting question, which we won't start talking about at length, just leave this point here, is do you know that there's a bunch of like actors and people in the arts in general who do things because they're the right thing to do not necessarily because it's a thing they're going to benefit from financially or whatever 
is it seen as a good, like sensible, uh, stoical thing when you get to a certain age, certain point in your career to star in a movie like this, a film that's going to come with this that you assume is going to be like because it's quite a risque thing in a sense to to star in a movie about a Risky, Bible. Story. I think you mean. I said risque, which is exactly what I meant. You know what I meant? Tell me how I should be talking like. <laughs> risque. <laughs> risque. <laughs> With an accent on the E. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. So there you go. I'll risque leave it Bible stories. <laughs> I... Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, well, no. I don't think so. I think... But lots of... So, Hollywood actors, the sort of various ways they approach it I think but one way is you just take work right it's a job like anything else and if the film's bad the film's bad the film's good the film's good you try and sort of pick ones that are going to pay you enough and big distribution and that sort of thing but actor people darling they talk about the fact that they discriminate between so called jobbing actors and those who can swan around and like you know create their own Will Smith style projects. And, yeah, uh, no, indeed. I was just saying, there's two sorts. So there's jobbing actors, and they're actually fairly common, and lots of very famous people there's are no jobbing one, actors. There's, there's no one in that film that I would regard as a, a jobbing actor. Emma well, Watts and Anthony Hopkins, these people could do what they like. Yeah, no, but they do. They But they take films of a certain size, but they don't actually you know, try to avoid films that might make them look silly or something like this. They don't they're not really hung up on a huge amount of, I don't know, reputation protection that mm. you could... So they'll be in silly films sometimes mm-hmm. because it's a big film and it's paying enough, I guess. And then, of course, there's the other side where you try and choose your projects based on what you think will be a good or a worthy film, right? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think anyone chose this as a worthy film. Well, uh, I don't know. Well, I, actually, I... no, that's not true. Because, yeah, maybe they did because of the director and yeah. because of the subject matter. You know, you might feel that this could be something really good. Whereas, <laughs> oh, and we forgot to talk about the babies. The fact that there's that they find a young girl and she's got an injury to her lower abdominal region, mm. and Name um, Noah's wife says, "Oh, she never, she never have babies." Guess what? She has babies. Mm. And then, and then Noah says, "If it's a daughter, I'll kill it." And guess what? It's two little girls. And he's like, oh, sorry, I've got to stab your babies in the face. (laughs) (laughs) And at this point we're going, oh my God, could this film be any more depressing? But Noah's humanity shines through in the end, which actually makes him pretty much bad in the eyes of the Lord, because doesn't God normally want people to sacrifice their children or something? Yeah, God likes... (laughs) When when God wants you to stab a baby, he wants you to stab him in the face. In the face. (laughs) <laughs> so you'll be pleased here. Spoiler, it's a major spoiler. Sorry, just ruined the whole film for you. There's no stabbing of babies in the face. So uh, the, the knife gets very close and yeah. hovers for a long time over baby face, but it doesn't <laughs> actually happen. And were they real babies or CG babies or robo babies, as is the norm these days? <laughs> After the uh, Star Wars, uh, the oh god, what's the last one called? Revenge of the Sith. That's, that's CG babies, and the the, uh, uh, the, the Twilight movies, <laughs> Twilight no. baby. That's a CG robo baby as well. But uh, we need to stop. Yeah, we need, we to, need stop. to stop now. <laughs> um, okay, 
Can I just briefly do a quick run through of shout outs on yeah. Facebook? Thank you to everyone who's been live tweeting, hundreds and hundreds of you. And we're hashtag Tezu Podcasts. Um, and also, I announce it on Facebook. And I annou- every time we talk about doing a new episode, I announce it. And then, of course, we can't do it for one reason or another. So that, then I forget everything because weeks go by. Right. Raven Amos from Alaska, which is right next to Russia, says, <laughs> um, can we mention the Ceratopsian art show that Scott and Zachary and Raven are doing in October? And it's a thing called Shields and Spears, an art show at the world-famous Yak and Yeti Cafe in Anchorage, Alaska. So if you find yourself in Anchorage, uh, 3rd of October, go along to an art show, and I'd love to do that. I've never been to Alaska. Have you ever been to Alaska? I've not been to Alaska, no. I'd love to go up there. Yun Wu Lee uh, asks if I can mention something on the fish book, and uh, I'll just say very briefly, I'm producing a gigantic book on the history of vertebrates, killing me. I've taken a break from fish for a while. I've just like, been writing about sauropods. Days and days and days of work on sauropods, which is kind of funny. What are you doing? Who? You! What? <laughs> look really odd. Um, just, all these new sauropods come out, like Dreadnoughtus, published just the other day. And, uh, yeah, don't! That looks horrible, please. <laughs> Rebecca Groomo. Rebecca Groom. Um, Kickstarter. Um, Bu- 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 uh, paleo plushies paleo- google paleo plushie kickstarter go and check out Rebecca Groom's amazing paleo plushie project Rebecca had uh, we already <laughs> sorry John is <laughs> John is being very silly um, yeah. if you give Rebecca a sufficient help <laughs> I can't get up I'm stuck Ow. <laughs> Ow. Uh, okay, sorry. I ruined that a little bit. Yeah, I didn't want to ruin that. That yeah, Rebecca Rooms Paleo plushies on Kickstarter. If you she, give Rebecca enough money, she'll make you a life-size velociraptor. Yeah. I mean, it's already funded, but I mean, yeah. go and get one anyway, right? Yeah. Uh and thank you to Ivan Kwan. I'm not going to read your comment Ivan, you know why. Uh Gareth uh, Monger, um, Sarah Bozenecker and Bobby Bozenecker, the Bozenecker twins or they might be married um, Sarah, have a good marathon Sarah and Bobby Bobby mentions a ki- another Kickstarter project involving now this is a bit weird, this is the CT scanning of the Focinid the fossil porpoise semi-rostrum which is the so-called half-beak porpoise or skimmer that we've mentioned, uh, well I've certainly mentioned on Tetzio, then about on the podcast but um, uh, Rachel Rasico, I'm probably pronouncing her surname incorrectly, but Rachel Rasco has got a Kickstarter to generate funds to CT scan uh, semi-rostrum. So I'm not sure how I feel about this, about raising money for science work. I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying I've got anything, any negative feelings about it, but it's... Ooh, I don't know. What's wrong with that? Uh, well, I'm not saying anything's wrong with it. I'm saying I don't know how I feel about it because... Um, it's like, why is the normal course of... Is this going to be... I suppose people have done it before by now, haven't they? They have raised money for science projects. Isn't the normal procedure to write grants and stuff? But, but then, but then uh, I've given up writing grants because I never was successful in any, in, in well, any exactly. of them. exactly. What's wrong with... <clears throat> I yeah, think no, it, in some ways I, it's a superior model. I didn't mean to imply that it's negative, And yeah. it's a good way of like... Um, 
well publicly sourcing money people it, like a lot of a lot of like let's face it i don't want to sound like a right wing politician but a lot of science funding goes to projects that probably don't need funding anyway yeah. um and i'm not referring to anything to do with the environment or conservation i'm referring to like a whole bunch of other stuff that really doesn't need to be done and is there for business model reasons um whereas if things are uh, kickstarted or uh, you know funded um like well, crowdsourced then um well that's that's things people democratically deciding what sort of science they want to fund so bring it on i suppose david krentz mentions uh he mentions dinosaur stuff about play behavior bob nichols um talks about svpca and uh, how much you love rodents uh judith Locke talks about a seminar at knox marco bosher bitchin bikers so <clears throat> those fish written bitchiers you did you hear about this uh, i shouldn't be talking about fish should i no. do you hear about this study i believe it was in nature communications where researchers raised i like they that. Raised, i shouldn't be talking about this no just go here on i go anyway well that's yeah. because it's it's actually quite cool it's something that they raised and this this group of animals i've been told it's pronounced bikers hmm. But it's written bitchiers, and in all the press releases that came out with this paper, they were saying bitchiers. So, uh, but you know that in the Cryptozoologicon, we've got Memo invented a giant terrestrially capable biker, yeah. uh, which we called Mobilia. Well, this group of researchers raised some bikers on land, and, and, uh, and, and surprise, surprise, these animals grew up being much more capable at terrestrial locomoting than ones raised in water. So it's quite a, a thing with like Evo Diva ramifications and also epigenetic kind of, you know, stuff. Um, yep. We're not going to talk about Godzilla, paleo plushies. Cameron McCormick talk talks about... Uh, yeah, oh yeah, well, something else. Uh, Richard yeah. Nicklin, Meerkat, Meerkat Challenge, <laughs> Marcus Buller, Patrick Murphy. There you go. That's pretty much everyone gets their shout-outs. Uh, new series of Doctor Who... I've been watching Dot 2 and quite enjoying it, even though I hated that dinosaur that was in the first episode. Stupid giant, like, scaly monster thing. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like Doctor Who anymore. Well, I really didn't... I didn't... I just couldn't get Matt Smith at all. I just didn't enjoy Matt Smith as the Doctor. I don't, I don't know like why. Matt Smith. I just don't like the show. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Anymore. <laughs> I did... I, and look, it's not like a deep hatred of it. I just got sick of it. I just... There's no... It needs when? more science fiction, more and less oh, yeah. well, that's crying and yeah, yeah. That's, but that's, that's so yeah. inconsistent. I just got sick of it. I'm not interested. I don't think. Ooh, an episode of Doctor Who. I think oh, an episode <laughs> of Doctor Who. Murder, <laughs> 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 death. The um, it's very arty, very flowery. The writers they the writers that get to do Doctor Who stories are annoyingly flowery writers, and I think that ruins it. So, for I mean, example, flowery even for a drama. Uh, this yeah. is like high melodrama stuff in clumsy yeah. way, and I just oh god no stop yeah, so, please yeah I, I I agree with that and one of, one of my peeves of it is an aspect of that the fact that you can go anywhere the doctor can, can can go anywhere in time and space and and every solution in the who universe everything every problem in the dot two universe is is a scientific problem so if you see a ghost. It's not really a ghost. It's like an alien trapped in a parallel dimension kind of thing. Or it's a hologram or something, yeah? Science is the answer to everything in the Doctor Who universe. 
which is probably the case in the real universe. However, when the Doctor, therefore, goes travelling in time, what sort of people should he go and visit, given his interests and given that he knows how the universe works? He should go and visit, like, you know, scientists and people who like making key scientific breakthroughs. Who does he go and visit? Dickens. Van Gogh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to. I don't want to imply that I don't see any value or worth in those people or what they've done. But you get my point. It's like surely he should be, you know, nerding out with Einstein and Darwin and and Newton and 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 it seems I know there have been a few storylines over the decades that have covered that kind of stuff. But it seems that all the all the pe- Shakespeare, so all the people he ever visits are the ones that that arty farty drama type people would think about putting in their stories and they which is of course is what they do yes yeah i hate it once you start becoming too aware of the biases of writers and i'm afraid that doctor who is well into that realm now i'm finding it difficult to watch but have you seen any of the new capaldi episodes? i have and i i didn't mind matt smith i don't mind i thought all the new doctors have been fine um as doctors, but I don't don't the writing of the show is too silly for me now and too weepy and oh cry, oh, cry, cry, oh uh, save everybody, something, something. Oh, you're the most important thing in the world. Oh god. Shut up <laughs> you most weepy bunch of irritating <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> Can you put that at the start of the show? I want that at the start of the show. <laughs> okay. Should we wrap up now? <laughs> yes, let's wrap up. Right. <laughs> uh, so thank you to tweeters and Facebookers. And and question for commented... Com- question for question... People that sent in cash for questions. <laughs> cash for questioners. Um, if you're interested in any of the stuff that we talk about in this podcast or Tetsubod Zoology in general, there's a little website called Tetsubod Zoology, currently hosted Scientific American, then you might be interested in checking our books, which include All Yesterdays, which is about scientist speculation in paleontology, The Cryptozoologicon, Volume 2, Volume 1, <laughs> Volume 1, Volume 2, very soon to appear. Yikes. Um, you can buy our books uh, at uh, irregularbooks.com. Yep. Or regular, you can get no, them through, regularbooks.co, actually. .co. Yeah, there you go. Also available from Amazon and other retailers, but don't get them from there because we don't get as much money. Um, there's a Tetrabods already Facebook group, which is definitely joined. It's really important. I currently tweet at... Strongest reader, mind what you have learned. Save it, you can. I'm sure I've done that quote before. <laughs> at <laughs> Tezu. Um... I think that might be everything I have to say right now. What about uh, you? Okay, yeah. I'm at johnconway.co, where you find links to my Twitters and my Facebook. Um, which is Nike to Terrace, or Nick to Terrace. Nick to Terrace. Nick to Terrace, if you're in... Uh, yeah. So that's it. Um, yeah, donate to the podcast. That's always good. Recurring donations are best. We have 30 recurring donators now. 30. Out of and how many thousands of listeners now? 4,000, 5,000, 6,000? About 4,000, I think. Yay. Welcome new listeners. So, yeah, the listener count keeps going up, but, yes. Very small to... proportion with recurring donations. So, John's going to nag you now. Yeah, nag you. Yeah, so, yeah. Do the recurring yeah. donations. Even if it's a pound, that's good. Or a dollar. Yeah, or a dollar. Yeah, imagine if all 4,000 listeners did that. We would wow. be so rich. 
Rich as astronauts, I tell you. Yeah. Rich as astronauts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd stop pod- podcasting immediately and <laughs> buy a big to... pile of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and a solid gold house. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, cash for questions. So, yeah, getting your cash, cash, cash for questions. We're nearly caught up now. I think we've got two lined up, so I think we can take some more. The way you do it is you put it in when you go to donate. On click on donate to the podcast, put it in the notes field on PayPal. Don't email it separately; that gets confusing, and I might miss it. So yeah, because I am not a very organised person. Uh, is that it? Is that all we normally say? <coughs> yeah, we're done. It looked like you were <laughs> gearing up for a quote there, but no, okay. I was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, done. Stopping recording. Let me do a quote. Wait. <laughs> okay. See what I'm just trying to get my voice right. Yeah. <clears throat> if you were <laughs> if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. <clears throat> You've done that one before. Well, I've just done it again. You've done it again. <laughs> Not on the podcast. Yeah, maybe. That's confusing, because the podcast is not that different to our normal conversations. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we were talking about the next generation, and I happened to throw it out there, because I quite like it. It's a good thing to say. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm going to stop recording. <laughs> okay. <laughs>